Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. Well, would you look at it, Halloween is right around the corner. As you might have guessed it, it's my favorite holiday of the year and my favorite time of the year. So because of that, we're going to have some extra scary stories for you today. I really hope you enjoy them. Well, let's get into it. As we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I was a grave digger in northern Alaska. Fear stopped me. Written by Doomed Geek. My family all worked 9 to 5. They had mortgages and health plans and spent most evenings sprawled in front of their TVs because they were too tired to do anything else. I couldn't live like that. Even thinking about it made me feel as if I couldn't breathe. So as soon as I was old enough, I packed a change of clothes, a toothbrush, and a couple of paperback books in a backpack and I left home. I had some money in my wallet and the lighter that my grandfather had given me in the top pocket to my checkered shirt. I didn't smoke, but he had told me the lighter had been his lucky charm, so I liked to keep it close. I did not need anything else. I hitched my first ride that morning in a truck heading north. It was a beautiful day, unseasonably warm for late October. The sky was clear and I had the wind on my face, until the truck driver told me to get my darn fool head back in the cab. I once saw a man get decapitated that way, he said. One minute he was spouting on about what a beautiful world we live in. The next moment his head was rolling down the highway, looking more like a squashed melon than a fresh-faced fellow. I waited for him to wink at me or crack a smile and say that he was only joking, but he kept on looking deadly serious, so I sat back in my seat and rolled the window up for good measure. Hours later, he pulled up outside a diner. Apart from a couple of other trucks, there was nothing else in sight. I clamored out thinking, this is perfect, and stood stretching and breathing in the air. The smell of diesel and stale fried food took the smile off my face. I sighed and went inside. The trucker who had brought me this far had told me that he was heading to a nearby docks to offload, and that was a dead end for me. So, before I went to the counter, I asked the other drivers in the diner if I could ride with them. The first one blanked me and continued to shove apple pie into his mouth. The other trucker grunted. I took that as a yes and went to get myself a coffee and a BLT, hoping that I would be on the move again soon. And 30 minutes or so later, I was back on the road. My new companion was a man of few words and most of these were directed colorfully at the other drivers in the road. Apparently no one knew how to drive but him. Thankfully, the highway began to clear and the cussing had died down, and the temperature seemed to be dipping as well, and I wished that I had brought a thicker jacket with me. The trucker appeared oblivious, but I was soon shivering, and to make matters worse, the sun was dipping down towards the horizon. It was going to be a cold night, I had seen a program on cable TV once about truckers. The ones in the show were all oversized characters in every way, who took whatever mishap came their way on the chin. I also remembered the voiceover going on about how the drivers needed to park up and rest every now and then. This was a legal requirement. 
And we had been traveling for an age, but the, the trucker that I was riding with showed no sign of stopping. Maybe I thought he was waiting for a suitable place. Somewhere with a restroom and a fresh supply of strong coffee and food dripping with grease. As I stared out the window, all I could see was the highway stretching out into the gloom. There were no buildings or other vehicles. I wrapped my arms around myself, tried to will some heat into my toes and closed my eyes as the last of the light had disappeared. I woke with a sore neck and a dry mouth, blinking and coughing and wondering where on earth I was. I looked around. It was light again outside, but the windscreen was coated with condensation. I wiped a patch clear with my sleeve and saw that we were parked up by a burger place. The driver was walking towards the truck, carrying two bucket-sized cups of coffee and burger boxes. He handed me mine along with my wallet, which he must have taken while I was sleeping. It looked like I had paid. I wasn't happy about having my pockets picked, but I was famished so I decided not to make a scene. After bolting down my breakfast, I just had chance to run out and relieve myself before we were back on the road. Twelve long hours later, we pulled up at an intersection. There was a gas station, a motel, and a store with an attached diner sticking on one side, like an extended finger gathered around it. End of the road, the driver muttered, first thing that he had said all day. I grunted my thanks and clamored out. I hadn't noticed it when we were pulling up, but as I stood there wondering what to do next, I noticed a sign by the side of the road saying, Keep Alaska tidy. My imagination stirred. I was looking to escape the humdrum routine of life, and here I was in a land of wilderness and adventure, according to the TV shows that I had watched. Well, it was time to see how reality had measured up, after I had slept in a bed and showered. I went into the motel and paid in cash for a room for one night. I fell asleep the moment that my head hit the pillow, and when I woke up after an unbroken sleep, I felt refreshed and ready for a new day. And then I began to itch. In the middle of my back first, and then on my leg, and then my stomach. I scratched where I could, but I would have had to have an octopus to reach all the places that were now itching at once. I threw back the bed covers and I grimaced. My body, where I could see it, was covered in red, swollen bite marks. Bedbugs, I thought, and I leapt out of the bed. Showering helped soothe things a bit, for as long as the water was hitting me, and then the discomfort flared back up worse than ever. I couldn't even bear to look at the state of my face in the mirror, and after dressing quickly and grabbing my backpack, I hurried out of the motel. I bought a tube of bite cream in the store and then went to a restroom, locked myself into a cubicle, and coated myself with it. I wasn't as itchy after this, but I must have looked even weirder. Wondering if anybody would give me a lift now, I headed for the diner attached to the store. The waitress did not bat a drawn-on eyelid at me when I walked in. There were only two other customers, a couple married from the rings on their fingers. The husband was a stick thin, but his plate was piled high with pancakes, bacon, eggs, and grits. His wife, who was slim rather than skinny, just had scrambled eggs on brown toast in front of her. 
I got up my courage and I wandered over to their table. Hey, I said, I'm looking for a ride. I would like to get out of here before the bugs eat any more of me. The woman looked at my face and exclaimed, Ouch. Her husband smiled sympathetically and said, We're heading off after we've eaten to a town way north of here. It's a place we discovered online and we're going to try our luck there. You're welcome to ride with us. Yeah, it sounds good to me. I said and held out my hand to shake. He pulled a face and I was momentarily offended until I remembered my hand was slathered in still sticky cream. And just give me a nod when you're ready to set off. I said into the uncomfortable silence and then moved to an empty table. I ordered pancakes and juice for myself. The waitress brought extra napkins with my order and told me they were for me to wipe the cutlery with when I was finished. I was relieved when the couple told me that they were set to leave and I followed them out to a rundown looking camper van. The couple who introduced themselves once we had set off as Matt and Jude were my friendliest traveling companions yet. They told me how they had been made redundant and decided to sell up and make a fresh start. They wanted to start a family as well and to run their own business. They were bubbling with ideas and enthusiasm, and I felt like I was with kindred spirits. Though when they asked me what my ambitions were, I felt like a loser when I told them that I didn't have any specific plans. The conversation faltered a bit after that and I returned to looking out of the window. They took turns driving. Matt used his brakes to eat cold cuts of meat, slice after slice of cheese and pickles, and when he was back behind the wheel he snacked constantly on chips and cookies. I had no idea where he was putting it all. The rest of the day passed in this way. It was well after dark and I could see nothing outside by the time that we had pulled up. Jude made her way into the back of the van and started to make up a double bed. I was wondering where I could sleep when Matt turned to me and said, The town's five miles north of here. Shouldn't take you long to walk. I started to ask him if he was joking, but I saw from his expression that he was serious. That's another welcome worn out, I thought, and opened the door. It was a cold, clear night and the stars were out. There were no signs, just the road disappearing into the distance. Trees rose on either side of the highway, and I could hear rustling sounds in the distance. Must be the local wildlife, I figured. But I had no idea what was scurrying around out there in the darkness as I trudged away from the van. I kept to the gravel at the side of the road to avoid any traffic. But as the hours passed, the road narrowed, and the trees pressed in closer to the edges of the tarmac. I had no choice but to walk pretty much in the middle of the road. I could only see a few feet in front of me, so I focused on listening for approaching traffic. I was increasingly jittery. I was going to end up as roadkill, and then be a tasty midnight stack for a scavenger. Turning back was not an option that lessened the odds of me being wiped out, so I had no choice but to continue. I don't think that I had ever been so miserable in my life, and I was on the verge of tears when finally I saw a light in the distance and my heart soared. The light was faint and still some way off, and I had no idea where it was coming from, but that did not matter. Light meant people, and fingers crossed, a hot drink and a meal. I increased my pace. 
The trees around me were starting to thin out and I could make out the shape of a building. The light was coming from one of its windows. I stood alone in its own grounds and I thought I could see more buildings in the distance, but they were all in darkness. I had lost track of time, but as it was still pitch black, I guessed that the light marked the home of an early riser or an insomniac. As I came closer, I could make out ornate lettering in the window of the building and I hesitated. It was a mortician's. Well, I thought grimly, I was feeling deadbeat so this place would have to do. I strode up to the door and I knocked. A shadowy shape inside approached and the door swung slowly open. A gray-haired man wearing a collarless shirt, braces, and dark trousers appeared. He smiled at me and said, My condolences for your loss. Oh, no, I replied, realizing that he must think that I was here because someone had died. I don't want you to bury anyone, I'm just arrived in town, you see, and well, I was hoping for a coffee and maybe a bite to eat. He frowned. This is not a cafe, young man, he said. Before he closed the door in my face, I said the first thing that came to mind. I would work to pay you for it. His frown eased and I could tell that he was thinking. Well, he said, my gravedigger is laid up in bed with two broken legs and I have a funeral today, so I could offer you work in return for food and drink. If you are capable of digging a grave, then we have a deal. He held out a hand and we shook. A couple of hours later, I was standing in a graveyard with a shovel in my hand, trying to remember the precise instructions that I had been given. The plot had already been laid out, and the mortician had stressed how important it was that the dimensions were exact, that the sides of the excavation be straight, and that the surrounding area be left neat. I mean, how hard could it be, I thought, and I plunged the shovel in. Although the sun was faint, soon sweat was trickling down my neck. My arms were aching and there was a sharp pain in my lower back every time that I straightened up. I was so not used to physical labor. It was around noon before I had finished and I had not seen a single person while I was working. The graveyard was within easy walking distance of the mortician's premises, which was on the outskirts of the town and surrounded by dirt and weeds with only a couple of sorry-looking trees between it and its nearest neighbor, a derelict hotel. I had not had a chance to explore the town before I had started work, but from the bits that I had seen, it looked to be a pretty old-fashioned place. The buildings were constructed of wood and flagpoles were popular, as were rusty trucks and mangy-looking dogs. One of these hounds was staring at me, as I stood grimaced at the pain that I was feeling and parts of my body that I had never thought about before. I was sore but also in high spirits now that the grave was dug and I called out to the dog. Howdy neighbor, maybe you can show me where I can get a cold beer later. And then I found a spot under a tree and took the opportunity to have a rest. My labors were not over yet. After the funeral, I had to fill the grave back in. And after that, I would have a drink and something to eat and then find a bed for the night. This was the life, I thought, and dozed as somewhere nearby, a bell began to ring. I had not yet seen the local chapel but assumed it was conveniently close to its flock's final resting place. And sure enough, not long after the bells had started tolling, 
I saw a small procession heading my way. A minister was leading the way, with a coffin and a horse driven by the mortician, followed by half a dozen mourners. I got to my feet and dusted myself off. I hadn't been told what I was meant to do during the committal, so I backed off a bit and stood there with my head bowed and my hands in front of me. I had no idea who was being buried, but showing respect seemed like a decent thing to do. Once the service was complete and the mourners and the minister had started to leave, I headed over to the mortician to ask him if it was okay for me to start filling the grave in. When he saw me approaching, the mortician smiled and said to me, Excellent work today, thank you. When you're finished up here, do you want to come back to the funeral parlor? I would like to discuss you staying on for a few days, if that's of interest. I nodded enthusiastically. I thought that it would be fun to spend a little while in this town before heading on to pastures new. I started to shovel earth onto the coffin and, once I was alone again, began to whistle as I worked. A short while later, I was knocking on the door of the mortician for the second time that day. He was wiping his hands on a towel. Come in, he said. I was just cleaning up and getting ready for my next customer, whoever they might be. I was starting to like this man. He clearly put a lot of care into his work, but he also had a somewhat wicked sense of humor. I followed him inside through a small reception area into an office and then into a back room. It was empty apart from a long table and a tall cupboard. The mortician turned to me and said, I can't afford to pay you much, I'm afraid, but I can offer you room and board. I would have spent my wage on a place to sleep and my meals anyway, so I figured this was ideal. Yeah, that's great, I replied. Uh, where will I sleep? In here, he told me. I live on the other side of town, so you have the place to yourself when I'm not working. Even better, I thought, my own space. I just had one question. Um, what is this room normally used for? I asked. Without skipping a beat, he replied. It's where I prepare the bodies before they're taken to the Chapel of Rest. Oh, I thought, seeing the room and the table in a whole new light. The mortician headed off after this returning an hour or so later with blankets and a pillow, and a stack of tuna sandwiches and a flask of coffee. He left me to sort myself out, and said that he would see me later and then added, One word of warning, the cupboard contains materials that I use in the embalming process. Some are toxic and highly flammable, so don't be tempted to go around rummaging in there. And with that, he gave me a cheery wave and laughed. I laid out the blankets and pillow on the floor and tried to get comfortable. I did not think that I would be able to sleep because I was feeling a bit creeped out. But all that fresh air and exercise, it turned out to be a great sedative. I was woken by the sound of a car door slamming and I rubbed my eyes blurrily. I could see out of the window that it was dark outside. And then I heard a voice that I recognized. Just through here, the mortician said. The door to my sleeping quarters swung open and the light was turned on. I sat up and watched as the mortician led in two men wearing police uniforms. They were carrying something bulky wrapped in a blanket, which they put on one of the tables. Thank you, the mortician said. The officers tipped their caps and filed out. I dragged myself to my feet. 
I couldn't take my eyes off the thing in the blanket, and I was starting to feel pretty green because I knew what it was. I had a new roommate, a corpse. The mortician seemed oblivious to my distress and told me in a matter-of-fact voice, this poor fellow was a newly arrived in town. I'm just going to go next door and start on the paperwork. And with that, he left me alone with the corpse. Now, I'd seen dead bodies before, but always on TV. And they were always a make-believe. And as grossed out as I was, something was drawing me to take a peek at this actual stiff. I knew that it was wrong, but I moved over to the table end with a shaky hand, moved a corner of the blanket away, I recoiled in horror at the pale skin of the face revealed. The blood gathered in dark pools beneath the skin, at the eyes which were glimpses of darkness between partially closed lids, at the foul smell that assaulted my senses and made me begin to gag. And because I recognized the body, the last time that I had seen him, Matt had been telling me that it was a five-mile walk to town, and now he was reduced to this, a cold shell. I put my hand over my mouth, trying to breathe, steady and to not vomit, and bitterly regretting my decision to go see what a dead body actually looked like. I backed away as far as I could go, which was only a few feet in this room, which suddenly felt far too small and airless. I needed to get out, but before I could, Matt's mouth moved, or rather something moved inside his mouth. I froze. Unable to do anything but stare as his cheeks bulged and rippled. Whatever was in there was big and it was getting busy. And then his lips parted and they were forced apart and a hideous creature appeared. It was slender, snake-like and paler than even Matt's dead skin. It rose from between his open lips, up into the air over his face, where it hovered and dipped, blindly it seemed. I wanted to scream but I could barely breathe. I clenched my fists in to find my voice. Help! I called out, weakly at first and then louder and louder. Help! Help! I was still hollering when the door swung open and the mortician rushed into the room. What's wrong? he asked, and then stopped in his tracks. He had seen the creature that had risen out of the corpse's mouth, only he did not look horrified. He walked up to it and grasped it with one hand and then began to pull. Like a disgusting magical trick, feet after feet of the thing emerged and finally, when a tip appeared and there was no more, the mortician turned to me. The thing dangled from his hand and trailed across the floor. It's a tapeworm, he said. They can spend years, decades even, inside a person's body feeding on the nutrients in their host's meals and affecting that person's eating habits and weight. But when their hosts die, they will starve, and some try and leave. He held the thing, the tapeworm, higher and added, like this fellow, and then he took it outside. I did not ask the mortician how or where he had disposed of it. In fact, we never spoke of the incident again. Three days later, Matt was buried in the town's graveyard. I took care of the digging and the filling, of course. His widow Jude did not attend, and I later learned that she had driven out of town in the camper van as soon as she could. I was still feeling pretty shaken up and decided that I too would move on. The regular grave digger continued to be laid up with his broken legs, and though there were no funerals scheduled, I didn't want to leave the mortician in a lurch. 
so I went to tell him that I was leaving, but would not go until he had another gravedigger lined up. He had been good to me and this seemed like the decent thing to do. I found him in his office. Winter had crept up on us and I could hear the wind outside. The mortician finished a phone call and looked up at me. I have a job for you, he said. That's not the usual grave digging. I was intrigued and forgot about giving notice. Sure, I said. I'm happy to help. That is much appreciated, he told me. A couple of gold prospectors have radioed the police after finding a dead man in a cabin in the woods. The prospectors had called in to see if they could buy supplies off him, but I found him expired. I knew the man. He was 90 and had a number of health issues, but there were no red flags, and no point in the police or the doctor trailing out there. I said we would go collect the body. When you say we, I'm guessing you mean me, I asked. He answered me with another question. If you are amiable. I am, I answered. At the end of the day, it would be a new adventure. The mortician showed me where the cabin was on a map. It was in the middle of a forest. You won't get lost, the mortician said, possibly having sensed the unease that I was feeling as I looked at the map. There's only one road, just keep to that and you can't go wrong. And then he handed me over the keys to the hearse, a fresh flask of coffee and a stack of sandwiches, and said that he would be seeing me later. And telling myself that everything would be okay, I stepped outside and with perfect timing, saw what I took to be a positive sign. A lone snowflake was drifting down right in front of me. What a beautiful world we live in, I thought. And then I climbed into the hearse and started the engine. The journey began well enough. The hearse had a heater and with it I turned it all the way up to full and I felt nice and warm. There was no coffin in the back and all I had to do was carry the body from the cab into the hearse. And once I was back in town, the experts would take over. I whistled as the forest grew denser around me and the hearse rattled along over the road, which wasn't much of a road. It soon narrowed into a track and I felt like I was aiming the hearse at a gap in between the trees, rather than following a route laid out on the ground. It was disconcerting, and telling myself that this was what adventures were all about did not help. I was hungry and thirsty as well by now, having stress eaten the sandwiches and gulped on the coffee and I had no idea what time it was. The reception bars on my mobile were permanently flattened out of sight, and I'd let the battery run down so it was no use, and I could not make out where the sun was through the canopy of the trees to even estimate how much of the day had passed. Thankfully, my destination came into sight. It was a ramshackle old thing. Its tin roof sloped onto one side, where the remains of a chimney poked up looking like a broken tooth. The timbers of the walls were dark with moss and there was a note pinned to the outside of the door. I parked up, liberated the note and read, To whom it may concern, we took oats and coffee and gasoline and have left money. We know cash is no use to the man inside, but if whoever takes care of his remains could pass it on to his relatives, that would be much appreciated. There were a couple of signatures scribbled at the bottom. I let the note fall to the ground and went inside. The dead man was slumped in a chair by a table, with a bottle of whiskey and a tumbler in front of him. Both were empty, so I figured he had not left his mortal coil sober. 
which was not a bad way to go, I figured, and I put my arms under his armpits and lifted him. He was quite away, but digging graves had done my strength a world of good, so I was able to drag him out to the hearse without too much panting and cussing on my part. And then I left him propped up against one of the back wheels. Before I put him in the hearse, I decided to go see if I could find food and a drink back inside the cabin, and I was also going to get the money. I thought of nothing else. It could go towards the mortician's cause. I left him the dead man there for about 15 and 20 minutes max, and when I returned, no harm had been done. There were a few flies investigating his face, but I brushed these away and manhandled him into the back of the hearse. It felt to have grown noticeably colder while I was inside, and more snow was beginning to fall. Not just single flakes, but flurries, which danced in a swirling wind. I closed the back of the hearse and walked towards the driver's door. A distance of a few steps, but I paused halfway through, because I thought that I had seen something moving among the trees. Some kind of animal. Something big and fast and now nowhere to be seen. A ripple of unease passed through me and I hurried into the hearse, slammed the door and was glad when the engine had started first time. My wheels threw up dirt from the track and the hearse rocked as it set off. I drove faster than I had on the way there. My passenger was in no particular hurry, but I was keen to be back at the mortician's. The branches of trees scraped against these sides of the hearse as my flustered state meant that my steering wasn't great but it was fine and I was fine until I saw the sleek shape cutting through the forest to my left. Even partially obscured by the trees, I could make out that it was easily six feet long and was moving in rapid strides on all fours. Its pale pelt was marked by dark patches. Thoughts of a dead man's skin flashed through my mind. I sped up. I didn't know what this creature was or why it was following me, and I didn't want to know. All I cared about was leaving it behind. But the creature was still there, and it was no longer alone. There was another one on my right, and one behind me I saw when I glanced in the mirror. My hands tightened on the steering wheel, and I threw all caution to the wind. I floored the accelerator. At last, the trees began to clear and I could no longer see the creatures. I was out of the forest and I had outrun them, man and machine once more coming out ahead of the beast. And even better, the mortician's building was ahead. I slowed down. The snow had continued to fall and now I was out in the open. I could see that it was coming down heavier and heavier, so much so that in a few minutes it took me to reach a parking spot by the mortician's door. The ground was covered. I had to fight to open the hearse door as the wind was upping the ante as well. The snow was being driven against me as I stepped out and I could not see more than a few feet in any direction. I hurried inside. There was no sign of the mortician but there was a note in the reception. It said, Looks like the first big storm of winter is coming, so I'm going to hole up at home till it passes. Please just put the body on the preparation table and then batten down the hatches. I'll see you when the weather clears. Oh, great, just great. I thought I went back out into the blizzard to get the dead man. It was going dark by now and the wind howling out there in the night made me think of the creatures that had followed me through the forest until I had left them in my wake. I told myself to relax. 
There was no sign of anyone or anything. Not even the town's dogs were out tonight. I opened up the hearse and lifted out the body. Once I had the corpse inside and maneuvered it onto the table, I sat down on the floor exhausted and more determined than ever to give my notice. I would do that in the morning, I decided, and I felt myself starting to doze off. The sound of scratching made me sit up straight. It was coming from the other side of the door. I could feel my heart beating faster and faster as I got to my feet and went over to a window, where I swore quietly to myself, exhaling a profanity. The creatures from the forest were outside, and they were pacing up and down, their pale pelts making them look like ghosts in the darkness. Only these were no unsubstantial spirits. I could see their jagged fangs, the sharp tips of their claws, as they moved across the snow-covered earth. One of them rushed suddenly at the door, and I heard but could not see the collision as its body slammed into the wood. And then the scratching began again. It was trying to find a way in, and I was trapped and helpless. Yelling out for help would make no difference. My voice would have been drowned out by the wind, but I could call for help another way. I ran into the office and lifted the telephone to my ear. Cursed, I slammed it back down. The line was dead. It must have been from the storm. So I was alone. The sound of a new collision of a powerful body flinging itself against timber filled the air. I looked out of the office window but could see nothing now other than snow. I ran through to where the body was laid out on the table and I tried that window. One of the creatures stared back at me. Its mouth was drawn into a snarl and its eyes were black, darker than any night. I found myself transfixed by its hideous gaze and simply stood and watched as the creature reared up. Its paws and snout pressed against the window as its breath misted the glass. But it was not looking at me. It was looking past me at the corpse. My mind scrambled to understand. Was it me the creature sought? My warm flesh, my blood, which was pulsing faster and faster through my veins? Or did they hunger after another prey? One whose meat was cold, whose blood had congealed. My thoughts were torn back to the cabin, to how I had left the dead body propped up outside while I went back inside. The corpse's scent would have been rich, irresistible, and it would have drawn them to it. And once they had that scent, they would not have wanted to let it go, until they had ripped dead flesh from bone and devoured the man whose body lay a few feet away from me. This was grotesque, twisted, terrifying. The creature fell back down into all fours and padded away, and for a moment there was only silence, save for the blood pounding in my eyes, and then the sickening sound of sleek, strong bodies slamming themselves against the door came again. I heard wood breaking. I had minutes before they broke the door and they were inside, and I had to think and a desperate idea occurred to me. I opened the cupboard where the materials for embalming were stored. The largest bottle inside was formaldehyde according to the label, a skull and crossbones next to the letter indicating that it was toxic, but it was the illustration of a flame that told me what I wanted to know. This liquid was flammable. I carried the bottle through to the office, and I had just reached it when the door finally gave. 
The creatures raced through the ragged opening past the reception and past me, into the room where the body waited. I had been right. I was not the feast they wanted. Not yet, anyway. I could hear them snarling, in a frenzy now that they had made it to the corpse. But I did not look into the room. I did not want to see the repulsive act that was being committed. I reached into the pocket of my shirt and took out the lighter my grandfather had given me, his lucky charm. I opened the lid and clicked the wheel. A spark flickered and a flame sprang into life. I took a piece of paper from the mortician's desk, lit it, and then dropped it onto the floor, at the end of the trail of formaldehyde that I had poured. The liquid flared and a line of fire began to race towards the creatures. I kicked the door to the room that they were enclosed and I dragged the desk table over as a barricade. I had doused the floor around the preparation table holding the corpse, hoping a fire would consume everything, and I could already hear the desperate roars of the creatures. They were trapped in the flames. Where I stood, smoke was filling the air and the fire was spreading across the floor and up the walls. I had to get out of there. Coughing and shielding my face with my arms, I ran outside. The snow had stopped and the night was clear and still, apart from the inferno which I had left behind. I fell to my knees and wept with relief as the fire raged. There were no monsters left, no creatures to fear. I was safe. Thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring this week's episode. HelloFresh meals have become a fan favorite in my home. Erase the time spent on going to the grocery store and planning out meals. HelloFresh sends a farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients straight to your door. Delicious and easy recipes included. Fall, which is personally my favorite season, is here to stay for a few more months. With changing seasons comes a changing taste. And with 30 plus weekly recipes to choose from, HelloFresh has something for everyone. Recently, I made the one pot pork and black bean chili and it was perfect for the crisp and cozy weather outside. The ingredients are always so fresh and they taste like I just picked them up from a market myself. You can also customize your meals by swapping out proteins or sides or adding specific proteins to a veggie meal. What's even better is using HelloFresh allows you to cozy up and save money by cooking at home. The changing leaves and moody feeling of fall is the perfect time to experience the delicious taste and unparalleled convenience of HelloFresh. Additionally, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh, and with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there is something for everyone. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep65 and use code MrCreep65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep65 and use code MrCreep65 for 65% off plus free shipping. Thanks again to HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I'm a fire lookout and I think I've made a terrible mistake. Written by Dark Knight Tales. I've been a fire watch lookout for about a year now. I spend most of my life alone in a small, window-lined one-room shack atop a steel and wood-framed tower in the middle of the Great Smoky Mountains at National Park. 
My only companions are my collection of cheap novels, a laptop computer with infrequent and unreliable internet service, and the two-way radio I use to communicate with the few other nearby towers and ranger stations. Nearby is a bit of a misnomer though. Using my high power binoculars, I can just barely make out Tower 12 on a clear day, situated several miles to my west. Tower 15, the next nearest to my location, only appears as a glint of sunlight to my east, when the sun catches it just right. I've been told the parks department intends to put up some additional towers in this area, as soon as it gets the necessary funding, which is probably no time soon. That's fine with me though, I like the solitude. It helps quiet my mind, keeps the memories at bay, well mostly. I occupy most of my days either with a simple maintenance in and around the tower, or by scanning the density of trees all around me for any signs of trouble. It's been a dry year so the threat of fire is a constant one. This particular afternoon I was clearing some brush from around the base of the tower that had begun to encroach on the fire road that led from my tower back to the main ranger station 20 miles away. Even with a heavy suspension of the government issued jeep park nearby, that was a harsh ride in the best of times. I had just finished dragging some brush cuttings off into the tree line when the radio clipped on my belt squawked. Tower 9, this is Tower 12. How do you copy? It was Billy Johnson, my supervisor. A nice enough guy, I suppose. Tended to leave me alone most of the time. I straightened up and stretched my back, wiping the sweat out of my eyes with my forearm, and I keyed the microphone attached at my shoulder. Go for Tower 9. I replied as I replaced the shears and the bow saw to the small storage shed near the base of the stairs. John, do you have eyes at a bit of smoke north of your position? Uh, stand by, Billy, I said, snatching up my water bottle and jogging up the metal staircase that wound its way around my tower. I didn't bother locking the eight-foot chain-link fence that surrounded my little compound. Chances were that I'd be back down here soon enough. Reaching the top, I stepped through the trapdoor and onto the walkway that surrounded the cabin, closing it behind me. It was habit at this point. The last thing I needed was to take an errant step and tumble down through the open trapdoor. I'd probably end up breaking my neck. As I passed by, I reached into the open door of the shack and I grabbed the binoculars hanging on a nearby hook, rounding the railed corner of the walkway and turning my attention to the dark green blanket of trees stretching out before me. I saw the smoke almost immediately. A thin trickle of a wispy white haze rose lazily above the canopy some distance off. Probably just some campers, I figured. Though there weren't any approved campsites in that area, we always had more than a few folks every season. We decided that camping off trail in the deep bush sounded like a hoot. Most of them come back just fine. Oblivious to the danger that this wilderness presents to anyone not adequately prepared for its risks, some of them have to be brought up by search and rescue, and some of them just don't come back. A member of the rangers or maybe even a random hiker will occasionally trip across the deserted remains of a campsite and report it in. Those are the spooky ones. The ones where the people have just vanished and are left behind a perfectly set up campsite. No explanation, no clues, just a deserted clearing. 
often with perfectly intact tents and personal effects. But there are bears and mountain lions along with a handful of lesser predators that roam these forests, and sometimes they get hungry enough to stalk and even kill humans. And that doesn't even take into consideration the much more likely probability that folks step out of their tents at night to take a piss in the woods and very quickly get lost and can't find their way back to their camp. Most humans aren't suited to survival in the wilderness, unfortunately. My radio squawked again. Tower 9, what's the word? Yeah, I see it, Billy, I said. Looks to be a couple miles due north of my tower. What's your plan? He asked, and I knew what he was asking. Keep an eye on it and hope for the best, or take a trip over and investigate. After a brief moment's pause, I sighed with resignation. Yeah, it's probably just a campfire, but I guess I'd better head on over and take a look, you know, just to be sure. I didn't relish the thought of a trek into that area of wilderness, to be honest. It was the only area that I hadn't explored during my time here. There weren't many trails headed in that direction, and the ones that did were badly overgrown and too narrow for the jeep. A couple miles hike might not seem like a lot, but when you're out here alone, the dense trees seem to stretch on forever. Two miles can seem like a hundred. Roger that, John, Billy replied. Take your pack and your rifle and check in periodically. Will do. Tower 9 out, I said, replacing the binoculars to their hook and shouldering the red canvas backpack, waiting dutifully in the corner chair. I grabbed the rifle from its rack over the doorframe, checked to make sure that it was loaded, and I headed out. As I locked the gate behind me, I threw my pack into the back of the jeep and set the rifle beside it. The jeep wouldn't get me too far before the brush made the trail impassable, but if it saved me even half a mile of hiking, it was well worth it. The sun was still high in the sky. I had plenty of time to get there and back before dusk as long as I didn't dawdle. I started the engine and put the jeep into gear, turning the wheels towards the unmaintained trail to my right. After only a few moments, the trees and canopy obscured any trace of the watchtower behind me. I was actually able to push the jeep farther than I had expected, a pleasant surprise. I was probably a mile along the trail before it crapped the bed and a massive pine lay across the path much too large to go over. The dense underbrush around me precluded the possibility of going around, and I immediately lamented not bringing the chainsaw with me. Cutting it up and wincing the pieces out of the way wouldn't have been too difficult and it would have saved me a ton of trouble. With a quiet curse, I stepped out of the jeep and grabbed my gear from the back seat. I smiled to myself as a quote from a certain fictional adventure-seeking archaeologist suddenly came to mind. We walk from here. Making sure to mark the location of the jeep on my handheld GPS so I could find it again, I stepped over the thigh-high tree trunk and continued along the path. According to the estimate that I had made before leaving, the trail that I was walking seemed to head in the direction of the smoke, which was a blessing in my book. The less time that I had to spend bushwhacking, the better the trail continued to narrow as I expected, and before too long, I was brushing branches and leaves with my shoulders as I walked. 
The trees, which had been alive with the chitterings and chirpings of animal life back at the tower, now seemed muted. The forest around me was growing denser, feeling oddly claustrophobic at times. I checked in with Billy a couple of times, advising him of my progress and promising to maintain periodic checks. He advised me that a weather relay had come in from the ranger station indicating an approaching storm that would likely reach us before nightfall. A quick check of my watch made me wince. I had already spent more time than I had predicted it would take to reach the suspected campsite. Maybe it was best to turn around and head back. The last thing that I wanted was to get caught out here overnight with minimal supplies and in a rainstorm. I wasn't worried, but it sure wouldn't make for a comfortable overnight. If I had been farther from my destination, I probably would have turned back right then. I wish I had. Within another 20 minutes, however, I smelled the faint scent of a wood fire. Not strong, but it was there. I was even more certain of what I would find when I reached them. When I stepped out of the now almost non-existent trail and found myself in a sparsely treed area amidst a dozen or so wooden shacks, I halted in surprise. I had reached the base of a hilly rise covered in heavy forestry, and these old forgotten cabins looked like they had been some sort of small settlement, perhaps an old logging camp, I thought to myself. I didn't know this place had even existed, and made a mental note to research it when I got back to my tower. I keyed the microphone. Tower 12, this is John. Do you copy? When Billy replied, his voice was staticky and distant. Hey John, Tower 12, what's your status? I frowned and looked around at the towering trees all around me. I suppose I was asking more out of the portable radio than was reasonable. I was lucky that I still had signal at all, to be honest. I found what looks like an old logging or trapping camp, I said, meandering among the decaying and derelict cabins. Most of them had decayed to the point of collapse, and there weren't any with intact roofs. The campfire has to be nearby. I'm going to take a look around a bit more. There was an odd pause before Billy spoke again. What's your current location, John? I glanced at my handheld GPS and relayed my position to him. Another pause. John, I think you should probably just turn around and come back. You don't have too many more hours of daylight left and that storm looks to be getting worse. Something in his voice sounded off, but I couldn't quite place it. Nerves, maybe. I don't think that I can blame him, though. My safety was his responsibility, and the prospect of one of his lookouts being caught out in the storm overnight probably didn't sit well with him. Coincidentally... It didn't sit well with me, either, I thought with a smile. You may be right, Billy, I replied, turning around and letting my eyes take in the entirety of the area. I think I'll just head. I stopped as my eyes caught sight of the bright yellow nylon tent, just beyond the last of the structures. Repeat your last, said Billy. I didn't get that. Uh, stand by, Tower 12, I said absently making my way to what I now realized was a small cluster of three modern tents situated around a central fire ring. The fire had been extinguished, but the embers still smoldered lowly, the source of the smoke. I looked around for the campers but didn't see or hear anyone, 
Sleeping bags and electric lanterns were still in the tents, though I couldn't find any backpacks or supplies. Hello? I called out, turning in a circle and trying to pick out any signs of sounds of human life. I'm with the Forest Service. Is anyone there? Nothing but the muted echo of my own voice. I was about to just dump some dirt on the remaining embers of the campfire and call it a day when I noticed the narrow footpath heading towards the slope. I could see clearly the recent footprints in the soft dirt heading away from the camp. I keyed the microphone on my shoulder again. Tower 12, this is John. I found the source of the smoke. It's a campfire, all right. Nothing to be concerned about. Billy answered almost immediately. Roger that, John. Head back home. I paused a moment, curiosity pulling me towards the footpath. I'll be heading back shortly, Billy. I just want to check something out first. I wouldn't screw around out there, John, Billy replied and edged to his voice. Better head back now so you can beat the storm. His last sentence didn't exactly sound like a suggestion. Something had rattled him. I hesitated before I answered. Acknowledged, I said, knowing full well that I was going to check out the path a bit before heading back. But still, I didn't want to argue with my supervisor about something so silly. And just a quick walk up that path and then I'd be on my way. This path was even less established than the one that I had been on when I discovered the camp, but I could clearly see the prints of the campers in the soft dirt as I went. Before long, I emerged into a small clearing, eyes widening with yet another unexpected discovery. The rough-hewn timber that framed the entryway was set into the near-vertical slope of the hill face before me. It created a dark tunnel entrance that had been sealed off with a heavy iron gate many years before, likely by the park service to keep inquisitive hikers from falling to their death in an old abandoned mine shaft. So it had been a mining camp, not a logging camp. Huh. I didn't know there were any mines anywhere near here. Heck, I'm not sure what they would have been mining for anyways. Coal, maybe. Gold? Did they even have gold mines in Tennessee? Eh, who knows. Certainly not me, clearly. Regardless, now that gate stood wide open on its hinges. The remains of a rusted chain and antique padlock laying in the dirt nearby. Heck, now I couldn't just turn around and leave. Not if these idiot campers had decided it would be fun to explore a closed and restricted mine entrance. Tower 12, this is John, do you read? Billy probably wouldn't be happy that I had continued my exploration after he told me to head back, but there was nothing to do about it now. I wasn't equipped or trained for any sort of cave exploration or rescue. The rangers had a very specialized team for that sort of thing, but I could at least poke my head inside and see if I could hear the campers or at least confirm that they actually went inside. No answer from the radio. I tried again, but with the same result. Nothing. I tried a different approach. Tower 15, this is John from Tower 12, do you copy? I said into the radio. I figured that I might be able to get Nathan's attention if I was out of range of Tower 12. There was a burst of static that sounded like it might have contained the hint of a human voice, but it was too distorted and distant to make anything out.
There was only a moment of indecision before I made up my mind. I knew that it was reckless to go into the mine, especially when my supervisor was under the belief that I was currently on my way back to the tower. But I just had this nagging intuition that something might be wrong with this whole situation. Maybe somebody was hurt and in need of help. I couldn't just leave them there, knowing that I might be their only chance of rescue. In retrospect, I should have turned back and called it into the ranger station. They could have mobilized the search and rescue team that specialized in cave rescues. I should have, but I didn't. I pulled my powerful LED flashlight from my pack and turned it on, and headed into the pitch black darkness of the mine entrance. The walls and floor had been smoothly carved many years ago, which made my footing uneventful, and the tunnel itself was mostly a straight shot. Several times during the first few minutes, I turned back to watch the bright square of daylight at the entrance gradually shrink to a pinpoint of light. By the time that I had taken the first dogleg turn of the tunnel, I was in complete darkness. It was a very strange feeling, oppressive almost. At one point, I had turned off my flashlight experimentally, but after only a few seconds, I quickly flicked it back on. In that time, my heart had been pounding in my chest, and some primal fear had begun growing inside of me. I took a moment to calm myself. The darkness was absolute. It was almost as if you could feel it pressing in on you. My footsteps seemed much louder than they should have on the dirt floor, and the air was beginning to grow cold and damp the farther that I went. After another hundred feet or so, the smoothly carved tunnel ended abruptly in a wall of rubble. I couldn't tell if it was a cave-in at some point or if this was simply where the miners had stopped digging and hadn't bothered to remove the debris. But either way, it certainly appeared to be the end of the line. And then I saw it. I almost missed it because of the way the light and shadows played over the head-sized rocks strewn before me. But when I looked closer, I realized that I was looking at a ragged hole in the wall. It was only five feet across or so, and it definitely didn't look like the deliberate formation of the tunnel that I was standing in now. It almost looked like the miners had broken into a natural void of some sort. Interesting, but there was no way in heck that I was going in there. I was definitely not trained or outfitted for any sort of a spelunking trip, and it didn't seem the sort of thing suited to the learn-as-you-go method. Just as I was trading back to make my way out of the mine... I heard the distant sound of voices echoing from the opening in the stone wall. The sound was faint and it may have just been my imagination, but I didn't think so. Hello, I called, pressing my face into the black abyss of the hole. Can you hear me? I'm with the park service. I'm here to help you. Nothing. The air from beyond the bridge was cold and it smelled stale, old, wrong. It felt as if I didn't belong here. None of us did. There was a long moment of unbroken silence, and then I heard a voice again, closer this time. Did you hear that? It said, presumably to a companion. It sounded like a young woman, nervous, uncertain. Hello, is someone there? That settled it for me. I carefully crawled through the opening and into the space beyond. Shining my light around, I found myself in a small, natural chamber. 
maybe 30 feet across and with an uneven ceiling of jagged rock that barely cleared my head. The first thing that caught my attention was the cracked lantern laying on the ground. It looked old, very old, maybe a hundred years or more. A thick layer of grime and age covered its soot-blackened tin surface, and the glass was thick and uneven. Beside the askew lantern was a small, leather-bound book, partially buried in the dirt and dust, with a moldering leather strap securing it closed. It looked like a journal, and without a thought I tucked it into my backpack, raising my light back up to a scan around the room. Hello, I called again. I couldn't hear the voices anymore, but the narrow beam of my flashlight illuminated another tunnel in the far corner of this room, mired in darkness. Can you hear me? Once again I got that feeling that something wasn't right, and then the voice came again, closer this time. Did you hear that? Hello, is someone in there? She asked, her voice trembling with apprehension. I hesitated, frowning. Something didn't seem right about the voice, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Before I could summon my words to respond, another voice called out. This time, it was clearly the voice of a young man. We can hear you moving around in there. Please help us. We're lost and our friend is hurt. Hearing me moving around in there, I was shouting to them. I sure as heck wasn't trying to hide. Can they not hear me for some reason? I stepped forward to the secondary tunnel and raised my voice again. I'm with the Forest Service. Can you follow my voice? It was then when I reached out to steady myself against the wall of the tunnel entrance that my hand met something wet and I recoiled in disgust, thinking that I had just grabbed a handful of some subterranean slime. When I shone my light on it, however, it became very clear the reality was far worse. Blood. I stepped back, trying to keep the panic that was fighting to take control of my rationality at bay. I needed to keep a level head now. Panning my light around, I saw an astonishing amount of blood painting the wall and floor in front of me. Somebody had definitely been hurt and badly. With blood loss like this, I wasn't sure that I'd be able to stabilize them long enough to get rescue in here. What the heck had happened here? And why did the hikers continue into the cave after one of them was injured this badly? Unless they had lost their light and gotten turned around, there was no way for them to get lost. There hadn't been any branches to this tunnel since I had first entered. All they had to do was turn around and walk until they saw daylight. The man's voice called again, colored with the unmistakable tinge of fear. What the heck is that? Hurry up, Becky, take my hand. He seemed to be getting closer at least. If I could guide them to my voice, maybe I could get them out of here, get to higher ground and radio for a rescue evac. They had a helicopter permanently stationed at the main ranger station. It could be here in 20 minutes if I was able to reach them. The woman's voice came again and this time I froze. Did you hear that? Hello, is someone in there? All at once it hit me, and the indescribable unease that I had been mostly successful in repressing now fought back with renewed vigor. I realized at that moment what I had missed previously. The woman had repeated herself twice more now, 
No change in her inflection. No variation in emotion or urgency. It was exactly the same, down to the syllable. It was like I was listening to a recording. Oh, what the heck is that? Repeated the male voice, and now even closer. Hurry up, Becky. Take my hand. Below the words, I felt that I could hear the stealthy sliding of something soft over rocks. It seemed like it wasn't too far beyond the tunnel entrance now, but I wasn't going to wait for it. I didn't think that what I would see emerge from the darkness would be a couple of college kids who had had a rough time of it during a weekend camping trip. Now allowing my panic to run free, I turned and threw myself through the cave breach and landed roughly on the flat stone floor of the mine shaft beyond. I skinned my hands badly and I banged my knee on the rock. Scrambling to my feet with a hiss of pain, I ran as fast as I could, not realizing until I finally burst into the waning light of the late afternoon light that I had lost my rifle somehow in that cave. And it was darker than it was when I had first entered the mine, and a quick glance to the sky showed the angry black thunderheads that had moved in as promised, much faster than I had expected. I quickly swung the iron gate closed on screeching hinges and looped the chain between the bars as tightly as I could, securing it rather lamely with the hasp of the broken padlock. I stood there for a long moment, bent over and hands on knees as I tried to catch my breath outside of the mine entrance. When I felt the first drops of the coming storm on at the back of my neck, I straightened and looked through the bars of the gate into the ominous darkness beyond, realizing how ridiculous my barricade really was. It wouldn't do much good if something tried to get out, but at least it made me feel a little better. Until I heard the voice echoing from the mine shaft, getting closer, it was unmistakable, uncanny. Hello, can you hear me? I'm with the Park Service. I'm here to help you. I know what's really happened to the KRI Nangala 402. Written by Dylan Skeldrum. A lot of you will have seen this on the news about a year and a half back. An Indonesian submarine carrying 53 people, the KRI Nangala 402, went missing on April 21st of this year while performing live torpedo training exercises. It disappeared 100 kilometers off the north coast of Bali, a little while after being given permission to descend into deeper waters. On April 23rd, it was estimated the crew's available oxygen reserves would have been depleted, meaning that everyone on board was dead. Efforts continued until on April 25th, the ship was reported to be found. News outlets described how the submarine had been found at 2,600 feet below the sea, cracked open and split in three. According to the Indonesian Navy Chief of Staff, Yudo Margano, the ship had been assessed to be in perfect condition before departure, ready for battle. That's the official story. What really happened goes much deeper and is far, far darker. What I'm about to unveil will be difficult to process, and likely difficult for anyone to believe. But all that matters is that I pushed the truth out there, 
even if it emerges kicking and screaming. At the core of all of this is the Edgewood Arsenal human experiments. These tests assess the application of low-dose chemical warfare agents on military personnel, while also exploring the effectiveness of countermeasures such as protective equipment, pharmaceuticals, and vaccines. Everything about that program was eventually scrapped and publicized, save for one very secret portion. With the Cold War bringing fear of open conflict to new heights, one of the foremost concerns facing the military was how to fight a war where weapons existed that could decimate swaths of land and wipe out armies the way that nuclear armaments could. In line with this, research into how to counteract the effects of radioactive fallout such weapons could cause was naturally required. If a soldier were to be exposed to even the minor dosage that the aftermath of such a tool of war could cause, their cognitive functions would be reduced within two hours, with victims becoming effectively disabled not long after. Death generally follows, with the timing of this varying greatly depending on the extent of their exposure. In reaction to the problems this quite obviously posed to effective military operation, the Edgewood Arsenal refocused its efforts onto exploring options for dealing with the consequences atomic bombs and radiation could have on a living being. At first, the project focused on preventatives, suits, treatments, or armor to protect soldiers. But all of this was futile when compared to the goals of the project. What the government wanted was the ability to send soldiers into sites immediately after the drop of an atomic bomb. This seemed impossible. At present, the best protection against radiation was and still is, minimizing exposure and maximizing distance, which was antithetical to their goals. After many years of following these lines of development, no real progress has been made. Vaccines had a minimal effect. Clothing was cumbersome and ultimately still penetrated by the gamma rays. The conclusion was made that other less conventional avenues would need to be explored. Now, here's where I feel the need to stress something. The common misconception about radiation and fallout is that it can mutate its victims. The basic reality of this is that it can damage a DNA, leading to faults within the functions of the body. People can be burned and scarred by the damage, but people don't grow extra limbs or gain powers like in some kind of superhero comic but it does affect their children. On average, 150 new mutations are added to each egg and sperm combination per generation. Of these, around three will be deleterious and only one beneficial, with the rest being inconsequential. Increasing the number of mutations through irradiation doesn't change those proportions. When factoring in the thousands of total egg cells the average female has at birth, and the billions of sperm that a male produces over his lifetime, the chances of an irradiated egg being involved in childbirth is extremely low. The complete effect of radiation on mutation is still not well understood, demonstrated by the fact that the Ukrainian government has had a vested interest in the perceived children of Chernobyl. As stated earlier, the vast majority of these children of those impacted by the Chernobyl disaster were born with disadvantageous, often crippling mutations. Keep in mind, Chernobyl happened in 1986, five years before the perceived end of the Cold War in 1991. 
Officially, the Edgewood Arsenal human experiments ended in 1975, but as I've stated, they didn't. Instead, they intensified their testing to include mutation breeding, human mutation breeding. They wanted to genetically modify humans to be able to survive intense radiation, not just to have them as soldiers capable of entering and residing within a fallout zone, but as a springboard to further and more efficient genetic manipulation. If they could create a strain of men and women who could produce eggs and sperm, immune to the effects of acute radiation poisoning, they could breed humans like dogs, selectively mixing, matching, and modifying for the desired traits. They could play God. The method they eventually found to be most efficient was ion beam technology, though this wasn't applied until the 90s. With it, they could delete multiple bases from the genome, compared to traditional sources of radiation, like the gamma and x-rays. Ion beams proved to cause more breaks in the DNA, while this resulted in them being more difficult to weave back together, it allowed for much more drastic changes to be made. The driving force behind this project was a push for progress, not safety. By this point, you're likely either calling me a conspiracy theorist or wondering how I could possibly come to know about something like this, which is fair. The truth of the matter is that my father worked on this project, and it changed him. Much of what I'll be reporting here will be in his words. He was always the stoic type, intent on keeping his work and home life far separate from one another. The man could make a brick wall seem emotional, from how little he showed towards his final years. That was after the period of time that he spent away from me and my mother, the period that he worked for Edgewood. I can't blame him for that anymore, though, for how little love he showed, for how closed off he became. Anybody with even a fraction of a heart would need to go numb to remain in the role that he ended up taking. Imagine being at the helm of something that tore a human apart and stitched them back together at a fundamental level. He entered the project in its prime in the late 60s. With experimental technology being applied, they'd already begun the breeding. Of course, this was all so horribly unethical and dangerous that it had to be hidden away, beyond the reach of the rest of the world. They also required a failsafe, such that if something were to go wrong with the reactor that they were using to generate the required radiation, it wouldn't result in something similar to what had happened in Chernobyl. It was necessary that in the worst case scenario, the evidence of these egregious sins of perverse creation could be swept away and lost in an instant. This is why they were performed aboard submarines. In order to distance themselves from the project, the United States outsourced the cover to a branch of the Indonesian government. Under this arrangement, they could label the vessels and staff under the wing of the Indonesian National Military Naval Force. It was an efficient cover, considering that around this time, Indonesia was known as one of the largest naval powers. It was only after seeing the news about the KRI Nangala's fate that he eventually deigned to share with me what had truly happened aboard the sub on which he had worked. It wasn't something that I had ever expected from him, given my only impression was that he had become cold and distant due to the immersion of his work. As you may imagine, I learned otherwise. 
He told me of the project that had become the linchpin of the Edgewood experiments, something codenamed Eden. In the first generation, 150 men and women were taken from a screened pool of volunteers. They were chosen based on genetic traits and once selected were taken into three separate submarines. On each, most of the vessel had been converted to lab space, with little left over for quality of living. The staff and subject accommodation were separated, but both lived in very space-efficient barracks unless close to birth or requiring extra medical care. A small amount of freedom was given, with subjects being allowed to roam between the barracks and the mess hall, where they could socialize and eat. In order to stave off boredom, a carefully curated selection of books were made available, as well as a number of problem-solving games and a chessboard. Mutants who displayed erratic behavior, however, were relocated to special holding, to be locked away from the others. To begin, the females were artificially impregnated by the males. The first batch were exposed to repeated non-lethal doses of radiation, treated for the effects, and then had their reproductive organs continually examined for damage or abnormality. This was repeated to term, with many of the subjects perishing due to radiation poisoning or complications occurring due to operation. The mortality rate amongst newborns was also high, though even those born with undesirable results were preserved, kept alive on life support systems, intended for use in the second generation. Congenital malformations and birth defects were rife, but the researchers saw this as a success due to the artificially increased numbers of mutations, both deleterious and beneficial. Negatives were as expected, arms and legs growing in stubbier weak, limb anomalies symptomatic of dysmelia, examples of organ hypoplasia, heart defects, and numerous other crippling deformities. The positive traits they managed to invoke included a marginally improved eyesight, a more efficient alignment of teeth, and tougher skin on the hands and feet. Along with this, each of these beneficiaries had the desired trait of a marginally increased tolerance to irradiation, although nowhere near the overall goal for resistance. The second generation was much the same as the first, though of course focused on cultivating those born with desirable traits. Those who were born with disadvantageous mutations and survived to adulthood were also taking part in the passing down of genetics. In order to test a theory the scientists were holding regarding compound genetic mutation, they were raised specifically for the purpose of mutation breeding with the first generation being allowed to provide parental care in order to permit a proper development. It was at this stage that my father had joined the project, scouted due to his expertise in human genetics. According to his account of the conditions aboard the sub, things were kept sterile and clean. The vessels were some of the biggest of their time, and kept a consistent depth of over 400 meters with their locations always highly classified. Morale among those workers aboard the Saab was shaky at best. Most of the soldiers, guards, and research staff were silent, save for when directly discussing work. It lent to an eerily quiet atmosphere, especially since most of the doors were soundproofed and airtight. Occasionally, when a certain set of doors were open at a certain time, 
The unnatural, warped moans of a deleterious offspring would carry throughout the submarine's many halls, the mournful and painted noise echoing off of cold metal. When hearing this, my father could only steal his nerves, shut off his heart, and try to reassure himself that this was all for the greater good, in the name of science and of mankind. With technological advancements and lessons learned from the first, the second generation were brought through the initial stages of pregnancy. The overall mortality rate was reduced thanks to developments in science and their aforementioned increase in radiation tolerance. However, a marked increase in rates of cancer caused by the DNA damage in cells was found in those undergoing controlled exposure. To combat this, radiotherapy implants were used to keep those carrying potentially promising eggs alive. This process involved placing small pieces of radioactive metal within the body that would kill the cancer cells. It was ironic that radiation was both causing and being used to treat the disease, but also served to demonstrate the potential that it could have should the Edgewood experiments prove fruitful. Antenatal screening, however, identified some problems. Many of the fetuses were found to be holding abnormalities and mutations that could prove to complicate the pregnancies. They had grown too large and too quickly, requiring a far greater amount of nutrients from the mother. At the current rate of growth, many of the unborn children proved potentially deadly to their carriers, which would also result in the expiry of the children before independence on account of incomplete prenatal development. Such a loss would be a severe setback to their work, a blow their researchers were not willing to avoid. The carriers were fed a potent mix of drugs and underwent continuous treatment in an effort to keep them and their especially valuable children alive. My father told me of how they appeared to be in pain whenever conscious. The mother's gaunt due to the constant drain on their body's resources yet their stomachs appeared bloated and distended due to the overgrown fetuses. Some begged for death, and others said she didn't feel that what she was carrying was even hers, that it was a parasite. Others, in their drug-induced euphoria, spoke of how they were bringing on a generation of gods, of how proud they were to sacrifice their bodies for their children, to be harbingers of such progress. He suspected these individuals had been won over by the influence of their parents, the first generation. The first had been essentially brainwashed into becoming zealots for Edgewood over the course of the project. On reflection, I feared that this was the result of some form of Stockholm Syndrome. Any subject who became overly problematic, those who fought back or lost their minds entirely would be calmed with drugs and placed in restraints. Soon after, if the person in question was not a carrier, they were subjected to the most experimental and dangerous of tests, unfailingly resulting in their expiry. Such isolation surrounded by acts and actions that constitute cruelty, social and mental deprivation, it was only a matter of time before it took its toll. The staff, of course, were not immune to it either. Nuclear submarines can run for over 20 years without the need to refuel. These particular submarines were supplied to only need restocking once per year. In line with the original agreements, any employed aboard the sub could only see the surface for a short period every few years, and these visits were always heavily monitored to prevent information leaking. 
This is why I saw my father so little while he had worked for them. One can see that it was not only the subjects that were changed, but the researchers as well. Apologies, I'm getting sidetracked. This whole event, the knowledge of what goes on out of our sight, it is deeply disturbed and frightened me. I simply want to stress to you the true horror of what has happened here. Back to the topic of the mutation breeding. The second generation were eight months into their pregnancy when things became especially dire. The fetuses had grown to be on average, more than a third larger than any recorded before. Their bodies were diverting more resources and nutrients than was affordable. Even with the supplement the researchers were providing, it was evident that a cesarean would be the only way to save the mothers before their unborn children killed them by way of displacing their weakened, nutrient-deprived organs. Said process was performed upon five carriers, the unborn children removed and placed in incubators. Unfortunately, three of the five mothers died during the procedure due to how weak the process had left them. It was also found that the umbilical cord was significantly thicker than average. Its size led into the additional drain the pregnancy had placed upon the woman. As for the children, four of them were ultimately deleterious and one beneficial. While all were affected by something similar to infantile giganticism, three out of the four were misshapen. All four had many of their bones grown into stiffly to allow for effective movement in their muscle mass had developed, too densely in random clusters, leaving them crippled. Despite this, they successfully inherited a number of beneficial traits from their genetic parents, although these pros were heavily outweighed by the aforementioned cons. The mutant who inherited and developed purely beneficial traits received the most attention. The child was born with additional naturally occurring growth hormones and cells that reproduced at a faster rate, yet these were all non-cancerous. Their body was balanced to accommodate each additional trait. After a full assessment, it was observed that the child should have likely been carried to an increased term of 16 months, nearly double that of a normal pregnancy rivaling the cycle of significantly larger mammals. Having found this, along with the fact that three of the deleterious children died within weeks, it was decided that efforts would be made to bring the other pregnancies to the full extended term, despite the risk of the mothers. Researchers hoped that by minimizing prematurity they would see improved results. The experiments continued with the vast majority of Edgewood's manpower and resources, directed to the survival of the carriers and the fetal third generation. Week by week, month by month, the project progressed. It was easily observable. The strain placed upon those bringing to bear the crucial next wave. And due to the extreme pain and mental anguish the situation was causing the subjects, induced comas were considered to alleviate their suffering. After further discussion, it was decided that this would be too risky for the unborn children, as a shutdown of that degree could easily result in the mother's body failing to perform the functions vital to completing the last few months of the pregnancy. And so, they were left to suffer. No amount of painkillers proved enough. How my father described the sight of these women, what they had become, what Edgewood had made them into, it disturbs me down to my core. They appeared as corpses, skeletally thin on their beds, surrounded by machines and wires, attached to IV drips. 
feeding and breathing tubes that just barely managed to keep him alive. The worst part was the state of their abdomens. It was almost reminiscent of a leech or a tick, fat and full of blood. They were swelled to unbelievable sizes. The skin stretched and pulled tight across the shapes that pressed and pushed with their oversized burdens within. Veins pulsed visibly about them, and when under direct light, one could see the form of the budding mutants still growing, still feeding off their carrier's vitals. This whole time, the two surviving prematurely delivered infants were still in intensive incubation. All five of the mothers who had cesarean sections performed upon them died within three months. Their bodies unable to recover from the immense stress the pregnancies had placed upon them. While this could have been attributed to trauma from the operation or chemical imbalance caused by drugs, it suggested that a similar fate should have befallen those still carrying. And yet, it did not. The numerous second-generation women even though they lay on the edge of life, suffering unspeakably, they continued to live. At this stage, they were more their children than they were themselves. The third generationals inside them were now measurable at over three feet in height, double the size that a newborn should be, and even larger than their premature cousins, who had already displayed gigantism. To note, this increased size was never a goal in the mutation breeding process. It appeared as a necessary side effect to the other beneficial changes, and those who did not adapt appropriate size increases were unable to house the additional cell count that occurred as a result of cancerous effects caused by the irradiation. In the lead up to the burst, the first generation and second generation males had been allowed to see the carriers less and less. They had begun displaying unsettling behaviors, and it was feared they could become violent towards staff or deleterious mutants. When visits were allowed, they were heavily monitored, with physical contact strictly prohibited. The only reason it was permitted was for the sake of the bearers, as symptoms of severe depression were becoming evident. Often enough, these would consist of the visitors humming to these semi-conscious carriers, kneeling as close to their beds as permitted, uttering whispered and incomprehensible prayers. As the 16th month approached, it was evident that the births could not occur naturally. The unborn children were far too large and the mothers were far too thin, which endangered the lives of both. They were deemed close enough to full term that a cesarean would be acceptable, their goal of allowing for full development all but fulfilled. And so the operations began. As soon as the vertical incisions were made, there was a flood of amniotic fluid. The uteruses had been stretched to accommodate nearly their entire midsection, leaving barely any room for the carrier's stomach and other core organs. The thick yellow fluid gushed out like a sliced cyst, flooding down off the operating table in a stinking wave. It was the same for each procedure, everyone beginning with the piercing of that overfilled, oversized womb. Soon after, the infants were extracted and taken into care, each one huge and heavy as was anticipated. The mothers were left looking like deflated balloons, and within an hour of the freakishly large umbilical cords being removed, they were dead. Their only reason for living at that stage had been to facilitate the growth of their children, 
and the task had left them with nothing. Examination of the newborns themselves yielded shocking and incredible findings. While the majority were born expressing overall deleterious mutations, a full third were advantageous. This was a significantly increased ratio, considered a resounding success, especially when looking at the mutations themselves. The most successful displayed among other enhancements were the following traits. Skin, three times thicker than the average human. Considerably larger overall size with notably longer arms, legs, and digits. Larger eye sockets and appropriately sized eyes. Significantly increased cell regeneration, lending to increased healing factors. Increased muscle density. Significantly faster developing and stronger teeth and bones. And finally, most importantly, extreme resistance to the effects of radiation. This was a brilliant progress for the project, plainly demonstrating the potential of mutation breeding. While they were still tentative as to how these third-generation mutants would develop mentally, those overseeing Edgewood were eager to push for more. Due to the fact that many of the first and second generation were now dead or mentally deteriorated due to the longer-term effects of the irradiation, raising the new arrivals became the full responsibility of the staff. Specially selected behavioral experts were brought on board during the next resupply to assist with this, as the rate of growth and increased strength the third generation exhibited meant that if they became volatile in ways similar to the predecessors, it could prove severely dangerous. While one portion of Edgewood focused on this undertaking, another was researching the newest technology applicable to mutation breeding, ion beams. With how resistant the third generation was to the effects of radiation, the additional damage such methods could cause was of little concern. It was still highly experimental, having only been tested on plans. But in the deleterious survivors of the second and third generation, there was plenty of stock to work with. This marked the beginning of a fast and violent downward spiral in terms of the last drags of moral integrity within the project. Over the years that it took for the newest mutants to grow, this aggressive testing and experimentation yielded promising results. Negative traits could be selectively identified and eliminated, though on those who lacked proper resistance to the radiation, it was a severely harmful process. The price of progress was lives, the lives of first and second generation mutants, as my father and his colleagues used everything at their disposal to prepare for ushering in a perfect fourth generation. In this pursuit, they selected one female from the third generation, one who displayed the most promising traits to bear further mutant children. Very few third-generation females were considered eligible to bear children successfully. While it was hoped that the use of ion beam genome editing could make the next cycle of births come easier, they couldn't be certain. After much deliberation, it was decided that in order to minimize risk and spare both the staff and the mutant from a possible repeat of the last round of births, she would be lobotomized. She was hooked up to machines and tubes that would ensure she received the required nutrients and that her body performed the necessary functions to facilitate her purpose, to be the ultimate surrogate for the fourth generation. It was for this reason that she was given the codename, Eden. She was strangely beautiful according to my father, around nine feet tall with long blonde hair and brown eyes 
her features kindly despite her unnatural size and strength. Before the procedure rendered her a living husk, Eden was apparently gentle, accepting of her circumstances, and considerate even to the staff. When she spoke, it would unnerve the unprepared, as in opening her mouth, she revealed her teeth. They were tightly patched with a second row behind the first. Each tooth was sharp and fine, especially her canines. She wasn't told what was going to happen to her when she was brought in for the lobotomy, but somehow she knew. Even as the anesthetics were applied and she was placed upon her specially constructed birthing throne, she gave a soft smile before she slept and spoke a single sentence, the last that she would ever utter. Through my children, I shall find rapture. Soon after, she was impregnated using sperm from her matched third generation male, who had been heavily treated with ion gene therapy. The other handful of females who were being included in this cycle were also being obsessively attended to, though Eden was the priority. The culture aboard the vessel had changed. As the third generation had grown, the disparity between them, the staff, and older generations were becoming evident. Testing and radiation had killed all of the first and nearly all the second generation, with only a chosen few kept alive for sampling or to assist in the development of the thirds. Many of them had grown to heights of 10 feet tall and were notably bulkier and more muscular than the average human, something that was causing problems. The submarine was not built to house these mutants, who stalked their accommodations in an unnerving hunched pose, with some even walking on their knuckles in a manner similar to how gorillas move. Their therapy and training with the behaviorists had kept them docile enough, but some staff members still voiced their desire to have them transferred to onshore housing, or to receive a similar treatment to Eden, as to separate any threat they may pose. This was soundly denied, as ensuring the mutants could obey commands was part of the project, a desired outcome. To further this end, some were given menial tasks or roles, performing basic maintenance or cleaning. The existence and treatment of Eden was kept secret from the other mutants, at strong recommendation of the behaviorists, and so they were not allowed to enter or loiter near the laboratory that housed her. Eden's pregnancy was closely monitored and the results were astounding. She was growing within her, perfectly healthy, a fetal male child that appeared to develop all the desired traits the staff had been aiming for. In terms of his size, early estimates predicted that he would grow to be smaller than his mother, which suited the desires of the project. As he grew, Eden's body held strong, her enhanced physiology and size allowing her to carry the child without issue. In fact, rumors spread amongst the staff that despite most of the connections in her brain having been artificially severed, she would on occasion peacefully smile, as if perfectly content. This wasn't the only abnormality taking place in the vessel, as the third generationals had begun to observably take interest in the room in which she was being kept, despite none of them having been told that she was there. While on duty or being escorted from room to room, the otherwise obedient mutants would stop and stare in her direction, needing to be physically shaken in order to wake them from their momentary stupor. When the time for the delivery finally came, it went without a hitch. No harm came to Eden and her son was born. 
He did not cry, which worried the staff, but he was perfectly healthy. In fact, he was more than they had hoped for. But simultaneously, at the moment of his birth, all of the other third-generation women miscarried. Their pregnancies somehow failed at the same time in a catastrophic setback for the project. Despite there being no signs of tampering, it was officially recognized as some kind of sabotage. There was simply no other scientific explanation for it, but my father tells me that he feels it was something else. Not inexplicable, as not only had the pregnancy failed, but the carriers were left barren. To put it more scientifically, all of the eggs of the third generational females had died. The only one left capable of bearing children and carrying on the project was Eden, and the single living fourth generational was Adam. Resultantly, the survival of the Edgewood experiments lay upon their shoulders. Half a century of work had been tarnished, but too much had been invested into the project for it to be for nothing. Thankfully, Adam was enough, and as he grew meticulously raised by the behavioralists, he demonstrated enhanced intellect. His IQ and problem-solving abilities far above what they should be for his age at each stage of development. His cells proved to be almost entirely immune to the effects of radiation. His reaction speeds and strength also beyond anything seen in even Olympic-level athletes. On top of this, he could pass as a normal human, being only a little over six feet tall and having inherited his mother's attractive looks. While quiet, he was polite, compliant, and soft-spoken, with a philosophical streak. As Adam grew, however, the staff did not sit idle. Once again, they cultivated and edited a desirable genome within one of the male mutants and then inseminated Eden. Surprisingly, however, the process had failed. Eden was healthy and her body without fault, but the attempt did not result in fertilization. They tried again and once more they were met with failure, and then again and again, even when trying to use samples from the original father of Adam. In an effort to solve this, they compared the genes of Aiden, Adam, and the original donor mutant, and the results were baffling. Despite exhibiting many of the same beneficial mutations, Adam shared no genes with the donor. In every biological way, he was not the son of that mutant. Once again, an aspect of the Edgewood experiments had denied a scientific explanation. If he shared no genes from the donor, he should be a clone of his mother. And while he did display half from Eden, the other half did not match any held on record. It seemed that the unknown half contained all of the genetic information that had made him into the perfect product that he was. Faced with an incredible barrier that threatened to stall the engine of their progress, while at the same time identifying what could be perceived as a miracle, a decision was made. The staff would attempt to fertilize Eden with Adam's genes. Concerns over the issue of recessive genes were answered, with assurance that they could reliably avoid this thanks to having perfected the process of ion modification, meaning that there would be no risk for the incestuous nature of this proposition. By the time that it was approved and prepared, Adam was in his late teens. He was not informed of the purpose for the sample that he was providing, but he complied, as he had done for every other experiment or test. My father had felt at this stage that they stood on a precipice. They had pushed and pushed the boundaries of what was possible, of what was moral, and now they were out of line. While it was a line those heading the Edgewood experiments were eager to cross, my father feared it, 
He knew there would be no coming back. Many of those on staff were entry and retirement age or had been replaced, the project having gone on for over 50 years. In anticipation of this duration, many of those who had joined initially were gifted individuals under 30. My father counted amongst them. The one thing they all had in common was that they had given their lives for Edgewood. It seemed as though the only one who was becoming disillusioned with what they were doing was him. Ultimately, it was not his decision. It was done and everybody who had worked on and held stake in the project held their breath as they waited to see if these unknown genes would yield results. Soon enough, they had their answer. Eden was pregnant once more. My father had reached his tipping point. He wanted off the project but knew if he made his exit the wrong way, he would have to live the rest of his life looking over his shoulder. He resolved that he would await his next leave and then request to withdraw from the project. In the months that followed, scans revealed that Eden was carrying a girl, though one that was developing very differently to Adam. The fetus appeared to be developing a myriad of both beneficial and deleterious mutations, including extreme gigantism, multiple supernumerary body parts, additional limbs, digits, teeth, and organs, a malformed spine and misshapen features. Termination of this pregnancy was discussed, especially for the risk carrying this pregnancy to term could cause for Eden and eventually it was agreed this would be best for securing the future of the project. When the first steps were taken to abort the child, however, Eden's vitals became to dramatically drop, only returning to normal when the threat to the pregnancy was removed. Attempts to chemically terminate the pregnancy also had no effect, and with each passing day the child, dubbed Eve, grew within her mother. It seemed that they were doomed to repeat the straining pregnancy of previous generations. As Eden towered over the average men when at full height, Eve displayed growth to an even further extreme. In spite of this worrying development, Adam was still proving to be the perfect subject. Behavioralists had earlier acquired the approval to further his education, teaching him more about the world and the project that he was a part of. While the experts discouraged anyone but themselves interacting with the boy, my father did speak with Adam on occasion through his teenage years. The most memorable of these discussions occurred when he was operating one of the machines during an experiment, one of the few to ever take place in which the two were alone. To the best of his recall, Adam initiated the conversation, which goes as follows. How are you today, doctor? I'm quite well, thank you, Adam. How are you? I'm conflicted, Doctor. Is that so on what matter? On my purpose. Those who speak with me at length tell me I'm a key to the advancement of mankind, and yet I've seen nothing of it outside of this vessel. I couldn't comment on that, Adam, other than to say I believe what we're doing here is in the name of a worthy cause. I see, and what is my mother's purpose? I believe that would have been to give birth to you, but the same cause in mind. Well, I understand. I would have liked to meet my mother before she had had her mind taken from her, to have heard her voice, perhaps felt her embrace. Adam then looked my father in the eye, placed a firm, deceptively strong hand on his wrist and spoke once more. I may not fulfill my purpose, doctor, but my sister will her own. 
My father never shared the details of this discussion with anyone. He went on leave not long after. It was during that month of April 2021 the news came of these submarines' fate. As I mentioned before, there were multiple submarines housing staff and mutants across the project, but the KRI Nangala 402 was the primary vessel, housing Eden, the unborn Eve, and Adam. It was destroyed under mysterious circumstances, torn in three but with no apparent cause, as I had explained earlier. Called in for a debriefing, my father heard the contents of the recovered black box and final radio interactions from the ship. There was screaming, alarms blaring, the sound of metal being rent and strained, smashed his staff, yelled and ran. There was gunfire and an ungodly roaring, one that he described as being filled with pain, rage and hate. My father swears that he could make out the sound of tearing flesh and breaking bones behind it all. This went on for several minutes, before everything was quiet, save for the sound of gushing water and faltering alarms. And then near the end of the recording, he heard a voice, a voice he recognized as belonging to Adam. Sister, you are perfect. Immediately following this was the violent sound of what could be deducted as water filling the submarine, drowning out any other noise. Apparently, the other subs swiftly withdrew, and following the incident, Project Edgewood was retired. My father was questioned on the final days leading up to the project, and gave the best account that he could. The last interaction he had had with any officials was being informed that he would now be expected to retire, and never speak of what had happened. He was given no information as to what had happened with the wrecker if anyone, corpse or otherwise, had been recovered. The cover-up appears to have been very effective at any rate. He did not keep to the terms of his retirement. In the months that followed, he fell severely ill, his condition swiftly deteriorating. At his bedside, I listened as he told me everything. In his words, he could not go before God with the story untold. He died three days later. I have deliberated much on what to do with this information, but for the fact that the Edgewood experiments took my father from me even before his death, I have come to the decision to share his final words, this retelling. I believe that if nothing else, it should serve as a warning. A warning that we should leave acts of creation to God. Thanks again to Mint Mobile for sponsoring this episode as well. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by big wireless providers, if we've ever learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I first heard that Mint Mobile offers premium wireless starting at just 15 bucks a month, I thought, what's really the catch? But after talking to them and using their service, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless service online only. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. One game changer that I personally experienced using Mint Mobile is better wireless service compared to my previous provider. I can't remember a time that I've had a call drop since purchasing a Mint Mobile phone plan. This is especially reassuring when I take work phone calls and talk with family members. Another huge perk about Mint Mobile's wireless service is how much you're going to save. 
NetMobile offers premium wireless for only 15 bucks a month, which is much cheaper than what I had been paying for previously. Would you need to purchase multiple phone lines? Mint Mobile offers the best rate whether you're buying for just one or a family. Plus, at Mint Mobile, family plans start at two lines. And all plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And no need to worry about starting fresh on a new phone. Use your phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number, along with all of your existing contacts. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash mrgreeps. That's mintmobile.com slash mrgreeps. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mrgreeps. I used to work as a park ranger. Now I'm a cryptid hunter. Written by horror writer 1717. I hate being a park ranger. There, I said it. It's nice to finally get it off my chest. It's not like there's any one specific thing that makes it so bad. It's a combination. The pay sucks, the health insurance is non-existent. And dear God, don't ever forget to hose yourself down with bug spray during the warmer months. I have a case of it that I keep in my car. I found out the hard way when I was down near the lake and was set upon by a swarm of mosquitoes, and the ticks get into places that you wouldn't imagine. These are the minor annoyances. There is also the other part of the job, the dangerous part. I'm not talking about people being idiots and having to swoop down from the top of a ravine to rescue them. Yeah, I mean that's there. In my opinion, that's called a natural selection. If they were close enough to the edge to fall, then that's on them. No, I'm not talking about those incidents either. I'm talking about the real danger. I'm not supposed to say anything, but I'm tired of the code of silence. That's why I'm posting this here. Now it goes without saying that I won't use anybody's real name, including the park that I work at. That should keep me out of trouble. I started working here as a park ranger around a year ago. It seemed nice at first to get out and enjoy nature. I'm sure nature would laugh at that since she seems to be set on killing people. Between storms, falling trees, landslides, wildfires, and not to mention cryptids, nature is not exactly man's best friend, at least in this park. Every evening at dusk, some of us rangers drive around to the trailheads to make sure that there are no cars sitting around. If there is, we take the license number and call the police to see if the person had been reported missing. If there are no cars there, we lock up the gates. On this evening, I had just finished locking the gate down by the lake. It had been a while since I had been near any restrooms and the nearest one was a half mile away. I was responsible for this side of the lake, so I knew no other rangers would be around. I looked left and right, then whipped out and added a little more fluid to the lake. As I was relieving myself, this huge, hairy creature stepped out of the forest, around 50 feet away from me, and it approached the lake. 
It bent over, pulling water out of the lake with its massive hands and bringing it up to its mouth to drink. After about the third handful, it looked over and noticed me for the first time. It saw what I was doing, and then it spat the mouthful of water back into the lake. We both froze. Do you know that oh-crap moment when you catch someone doing something that they shouldn't at the same time you're doing something that you shouldn't? Like when you're on duty and coming out of the liquor store with a brown bag and you see a coworker buying a bag of weed. You both stare at each other hoping that the other one will be the one to feel guilty and walk away first. But neither of you does. You just stand there. That's what we did. We just stood there looking at each other, this creature and I. How was I scared? Heck yeah, I was scared. This thing was freaking huge. Do you remember that part in Star Wars where Han tells a 3PO that Wookiees are known to rip people's arms out of their sockets? Well, that's what I was thinking this thing might do. I mean, it was big enough to give Chewie a swirly. The thought of my arms being forcefully and painfully removed from my body bounced around in my head so much that I started sweating. They say that animals can smell fear. I bet I smelled like I had just walked out of a Saw movie marathon. Neither one of us moved. Me out of total terror, him out of... How the heck should I know what that thing was thinking? All I knew was that it wasn't running away. I didn't take that as a good sign. I took that as him looking at me and someone in the background ringing the dinner bell. Finally, after a long moment of this insane standoff, my shaking hand reached for my phone. Much to my surprise and relief, it took off into the woods at inhuman speed. Against my better judgment, I followed as best I could but soon lost sight of it. I came back to the shoreline and found huge footprints. I took pictures with my phone and went to the station to show everyone. That's super, Ron said with a laugh. Did you get a picture of the Tooth Fairy too? The room erupted with laughter as all the rangers, even the ones that I had considered to be friends, had turned on me. No, that would be a fae, said Sharon, not a Sasquatch. Don't you know anything, Ron? Did it give you any beef jerky? Jeff said, causing the group to erupt with even more laughter. Oh no, come on, Nancy said. Let's be realistic. My hope soared that someone might actually believe me. You don't really think there's any beef in that jerky, do you? Nancy said. My hopes crashed down again. Hey, shut up all you idiots. Dell said, pulling me aside. Let me see that phone. I handed it to him, feeling my hopes rise again. He looked through the pictures one by one. His face was set. I couldn't read his emotions. He didn't seem to react with surprise or disbelief. When he was done looking through them, he scrolled back and deleted every picture that had anything to do with the creature. What the heck? I said, grabbing my phone. I'm doing you a favor, he said. You don't want to go down that road. It only leads to bad things. I stared at my phone in shock. I couldn't believe that somebody that I had trusted, someone that I looked up to, the most senior ranger in the station, 
he had just destroyed evidence of this mythical creature's existence. But it was real. I saw it. Chuckles sounded from around the room. Dell turned and silenced them with a look. Why don't you take tomorrow off and get your head clear? He said. I found myself nodding and not really sure why, as he guided me out of the station toward my car. Hey, enjoy yourself, he said. Go do something relaxing. You've had a hard day. I started toward my car, Dell watching me the entire time. As soon as he had stepped back inside, I could hear another roar of laughter. I knew that it was at my expense. I got into my car in a daze. It wasn't until I looked at my phone that I realized just how violated I felt. I drove home and sat in the kitchen staring at the wall. I know that I saw it, I kept telling myself. I pondered what to do with no evidence and no one to back me up. But an idea came to me. I started looking for Bigfoot traps online. I looked up how to trap a Bigfoot and got some very interesting ideas. The next day, I went and bought some bear traps. When I drove to work the following morning, I got there early and quietly transferred my bear traps to the state truck that I would be using that day. I went inside and greeted at the other rangers. They all seemed aloof, holding back like they were waiting for something to happen. I rounded the corner to the lockers and found out what. My locker had been covered in Bigfoot pictures. There was even one with a picture of a naked woman and Chewbacca's head taped over hers. The caption written it said, Come find me, big boy. And this is why I hate people. I did my best to ignore as the titters and chuckles sounded behind me. I said nothing and I went to my truck. I sat there for a long time trying to get the rage to bleed off, but all I could think of was revenge. That taught me the hard lesson. Just keep your mouth shut. I learned that lesson well, but the damage is already done. The other rangers were already calling me a freak and a joke. That upset me, but also strengthened my resolve. It would have been easy to quit right there, but I was determined to prove myself. That I was as good as they were. That I wasn't crazy. That this thing really existed. As the man said, two out of three ain't bad. I started patrolling down by the lake more often, looking for my prey where I had seen it last. But I had the sinking suspicion that it was watching me, that it knew that I was hunting it. I tried to be nonchalant about it at first. I would drive by looking around like a good ranger should. But after a while, I started getting impatient. I would spend more time there than the rest of my route. It got to the point where people would come up to me and ask for help but I would ignore them or shuttle them off to another ranger. I started getting proactive in my hunt. I found a deer carcass near the place that I had seen the creature and I set the bear traps up around it. And then I staked out the area and I waited. For a long time. People came up to me, I ignored them. Animals came up to me and I ignored them. The only thing I was focused on was finding my prey. Morning turned to afternoon and turned to evening with no results. I sighed in resignation when it came time to close the gates. I decided to go home and let the traps do the work for me. 
The next morning I overslept, and I drove like a madman to get to work, more specifically to get back to my stakeout. Imagine my surprise when I came back and found that I had caught something in my trap. A fellow ranger. Ron lay on the ground screaming and I went over to help him. Are you okay? I said. No, you idiot. I have a giant metal jaw attached to my leg, he said. I fumbled with the trap, trying to get it open, only to have it snap shut on his leg again. Jesus, what the heck are you doing? He said. Are you too stupid to even open a trap? I stopped and looked at him. Well, at least I'm not stupid enough to step into one. Hey, screw you. I stood up to leave. Where are you going? I whipped around on him. Screw you, I said. I come over here to help you and you're treating me like some piece of crap. Get out of your own dang trap. I started walking away. Okay, he said. I stopped and turned. Okay, what? Okay, I'm sorry. Will you please help me get out of this trap? I paused for a moment and then went back. Alright, I've never opened a trap before. I lied. Tell me what to do. Well, these are the springs, he said. Press down on them and it'll open the jaws. Once the jaws were open, he pulled his injured leg free. Thank God, he said checking out his injured leg. Who put that trap there anyway? No clue, I lied. I drove Ron straight to the hospital to get him taken care of. Once he was in the room and being treated, I laughed. But there was the matter of the illegal bear trap that had injured a park ranger. Dell was not happy. He pulled me into his office. Man, I can't believe this happened, he said. I've known Ron for years. He's a good friend and a good ranger. The person responsible for this is going to pay. I'll see him strung up by his entrails. Yes, sir, I said. This should never happen on park grounds. It's a deliberate attack and I won't rest until I see Ron's killer behind bars. He's not dead, sir. Whatever, you get the point, he said. And what do you know about this? Me, I said feigning ignorance. Why would you ask me? He shot me a steely glare. You know exactly why, he said. I was feeling the metaphorical handcuffs that click closed around my wrist. Because you didn't listen to me and let this Bigfoot thing go, he said. Other rangers have seen you hanging around where you saw that thing. I'm thinking maybe you saw the person who set that trap. I took a breath, feeling the cuffs fall off my wrist. Well, there have been a few unsavory types hanging around, I said. Well, I want you to track him down and find out who did this to one of my rangers, he said, slamming his fist on his desk. Yes, sir, I said as I walked out of his office. I couldn't believe it. I was off the hook. I was in charge of my own investigation. Stopping to think about it, it made perfect sense why he chose me. It was a crap job that no one else wanted to do but I was going to do it to my absolute best of ability. I thought sarcastically. Yes, sir. I won't rest until I'm brought to justice. You can count on me, sir. I waited until I was a mile down the road before I started laughing. I went to the crime scene and explored it very carefully. Back and forth, over and over, I went through the area, 
until there were no tracks anywhere that weren't mine. Of course, the only tracks before were mine too, and of course, Ron's. As an added bonus to tracking myself, I was able to do it in the area of the sighting, continuing my search for the creature. It was a win-win for me. Thank you, Ron, you piece of crap, for blundering into that trap and giving me the best assignment that I could have possibly have, I thought. As the days went by and I looked for myself in vain, I came across an area not too far from the lake where there was a cave with a well-worn path to it. At first I thought it was a bear cave, but then I found a couple of the tracks that had been deleted off my phone by a certain ranger. I took pictures of the tracks and made sure that I sent them to myself by email. And I also kept my mouth shut about it, at least to my idiot co-workers. My mind playfully wondered how many more I could trick into a bear trap, or maybe something worse. I smiled as I chided myself for such thoughts. Suddenly, I felt that something was wrong. The birds had stopped singing. I turned to find the creature standing four feet from me. I was amazed at how silent it had moved, but my amazement quickly gave way to fear as a yellow river ran down the inside of my pants. It was even more huge up close, at least eight feet tall and completely covered in brown fur. It had bared its teeth and was flexing its massive hands. For some reason, I don't think that it liked me very much. Hey, go figure. It lunged at me with impossible speed. I tried to dodge, but my boot got stuck on a tree root and I tripped. I fell backward and landed hard on my back, knocking the wind out of me. I laid there helpless at the mercy of this beast. All it had to do was carry me into its cave and I would never be seen again, except for in smelly little piles hours later on. That was a happy thought. I tried to regain my normal breathing, surprised that it hadn't dragged me away yet. As I came around and the stars floated around my head turned back into trees, I saw the creature laying face down a few yards from me. I rose slowly and approached it. I could see its back rising and falling, so I knew that it was still breathing. I took out my phone and took pictures, just in case it didn't kill me, or in case it got up and ran away. I even leaned close and took a selfie with it in the background. Just then, it took a slightly deeper breath and I skittered away. When it didn't jump up and rip my arms out of my sockets, I took a closer look. There was a little blood laying beside its head, which was laying on top of a big rock. Apparently, when it had lunged at me, it wasn't counting on me falling and it dove right into the rock and it knocked itself out cold. This was it. The golden goose had pulled a muscle in its wing while it flew over me and landed in my lap. I ran to the truck and grabbed the tranquilizer gun and a lot of netting. As I ran back, the thought of it not being there drove me to distraction. All my hard work of looking into this perfect scenario would have been for nothing. I ran as fast as I could, carrying a big net on my back and I prayed that it was still there. When I got there, it was stirring and trying to get up. I dropped the net and fumbled with the trank gun, nearly shooting myself in the process until I finally aimed. It saw me just as I pointed the gun at it, our eyes locked. 
It was a magical moment until I squeezed the trigger and sent him back to La La Land. He probably wasn't going to be very happy when he woke up though. Plus, I accidentally shot him in the crotch. I made sure to reload the gun just in case and then tried to roll him over onto the netting. He felt like he weighed a thousand pounds. I racked my brain on how to get him out of there and eventually came up with a solution. I backed the truck up through a half mile of trees, leaving scratches on the sides and almost leaving a rearview mirror behind. I managed to get close enough to hook the net onto the trailer hitch. I dragged him out to the road and stopped to figure out my next move. My house was about 10 miles away. If I dragged him the whole way, all I would have left would be a Bigfoot burger. I couldn't lift him and it was after hours so. There was no one else around to help me get him into the bed. Not that I really wanted anybody else seeing him. I panned around and I found the solution. There was a small embankment about four feet high. I drove the truck onto it and then drove very carefully straight down it. I was terrified that I would flip the truck end over end and that would be the end of my little adventure. But I just kept moving slowly as the front wheels touched down and kept going. Next was the tricky part. I got the back wheels on the ground and then gunned it forward and slammed it in reverse. His head was hanging over the edge when I backed up and I accidentally pinned it between the truck gate and the dirt bank. I pulled forward a little and grabbed the netting, pulling with every ounce of strength that I had. Ever so slowly, his prone body inched forward until he had reached the tipping point and rolled into the truck's bed. When he flopped down, one of his feet hit the back window and shattered it. Great, I thought. Hey boss, when I was capturing the creature you said doesn't exist in the company vehicle, oh yeah, I broke the window. Is that covered by our insurance? I was breathing hard until I was done. I covered him with a tarp and drove away, racking my brain about where I would take him. As I was thinking, I passed a storage unit that was somewhat remote. It was just off the back road that I was on, and it didn't seem like a lot of traffic passed this way. I called up and rented a unit with my credit card and then showed up and backed the truck up to it. My cargo was starting to stir again as I arrived, so I gave it another dose of the trank and I dragged it off the truck as best I could, meaning that it flopped over and nearly crushed me. Then not at all of it was inside and I couldn't close the door, so I turned the truck around and gently pushed it inside with the front bumper before closing and locking the door. Next came the tricky part. I couldn't go on Craigslist and advertise. One Bigfoot slightly used, 50 million, or best offer. Fortunately, I knew a guy who had a cousin's brother who knew another guy's best friend, who knew someone who knew someone else who might be able to get me in contact with someone who doesn't exist. I printed a few of the pictures, wrote a number with a lot of zeros in it, and sent it through the information chain. I got a phone call two hours later from someone who doesn't exist. He met me at the storage unit with a lot of heavily armed men dressed in black combat gear and no identifying patches. When we got there, the door was under attack. It had lots of newly formed dents in it and the sides were looking like they weren't going to hold much longer. My friend apparently had woken up and wasn't very happy with his new surroundings. 
I offered to open the door just an inch and hit him with another trank dart, but the man waved me off. The heavily armed gentleman worked with practiced precision. They flung open the door and threw a containment net over him as he tried to run past them. Within moments, he was incapacitated. As they carried him out, his eyes landed on me. They narrowed and he let out a menacing growl. I'd say you made a new friend. The man said, handing me a business card with a number on it and nothing else. What's this for? I said. If you come across any more creatures of such a mythical nature, give me a call. Maybe we can help with the capture of the next one. Are you nuts? I said. You saw that thing, it's huge and it wants to kill me now. And yet here you are, very much alive. He reached into a pocket and pulled out a check. And very wealthy. I looked at the check and then back at him. He grinned. Might I suggest that you not spend too much and raise suspicions? So, you would pay me this much for each one of these things that I find? He nodded. And you would help me catch it? He nodded again. Well, looks like you just bought yourself a park ranger. I said offering my hand. And he shook it. Pleasure doing business with you. He said and then turned and walked away. Temptation is a terrible thing. I was tempted to buy a brand new Ferrari and drive it to work just to shove it in the noses of those guys who made fun of me. But then I realized that success is the best revenge. If I can nab another creature or two, I could buy my own little island and retire. I'm thinking maybe Hawaii. My investigation into the bear trap took me to a place where I'd heard there's been some trouble lately with missing hikers. Not that I really care about the hikers. In this park, we should rename the trails for which cryptids hunt on it. That way, when these hikers ignore the warnings and blunder into the dens of these dangerous creatures, they'll only have themselves to blame. I'm thinking maybe I can make my job easier by buying the land that has the cryptid that I'm looking for and then clear-cut all the trees so it has no place to hide. Now I know what you're thinking, it would just run away to another spot. Not the way that I would clear-cut. Start with a hunter machines on the outside of the property and work our way into the center so it has nowhere to go. As I looked around the land and daydreamed, a hiker came running up to me. Please, you need to help me, she said. Oh, what's the problem? I said, feeling less than interested. My husband and brother, they were attacked. By an animal. She lowered her eyes. I don't really know what it was. It seemed unnatural. My ears perked up and I became laser focused on helping this poor woman. Don't worry ma'am, I said. Show me where it happened and I'll take care of it. Oh thank God, she said as we started down the trail. I was worried that you wouldn't believe me. Trust me ma'am, I said. I want to find out what happened as much as you do. You know what a love-hate relationship is, right? I think everyone has one at some point. My point was the last year or so of my life. I hate being a park ranger, but I love the perks that come with it. Maybe I should explain that better. The perks don't come directly from the job. They come from the appearance of the job. I tell people that I'm a park ranger. My boss thinks I'm a park ranger. And even my idiot co-workers think that I'm a park ranger. 
but it's just not so. That's only for appearances. I'm actually a cryptid hunter. I started calling myself that last month after successfully capturing an adult Bigfoot. What did I do with it? I sold it to a group of people who don't have names or ranks but gave me lots of money for it. I used the park ranger persona to stay low-key and keep hunting other cryptids. Do I do it for the greater good? Heck no, don't make me laugh. I do it for the money. I have people in the process, but it's purely unintentional. For instance, this woman came to me crying that her husband and brother were missing. When she explained that something had attacked them, something that didn't look like any animal she had ever seen, I knew that I had some money on the line. I mean, um, I knew that I had to help that poor woman find her family. Yeah, that's it. We walked down the trail, my senses on high alert, looking for any signs of trouble. Birds were singing, so that was a good sign that nothing was in the area. In other words, it was a bad sign for me. We got to our campsite and the place looked like a tornado had hit it, or my place after a bender. I looked around for tracks, but I wasn't finding any. That in and of itself told me something. Ma'am, I said to the frazzled woman who was so shell-shocked that she was cleaning up the campsite. Did you hear anything before your husband was taken? Like what? Like a rushing or a flapping. She looked at me like she was rethinking the whole I'm so glad you believe me thing. You mean like a bird? Yes, ma'am. I don't think so. She said picking up plastic cups and putting them in the trash. I wanted to tell her not to disturb anything, but I figured that this was her way of coping, so I let her go. As I searched the campsite for clues, I found something I'm sure the woman didn't want me to. A small pool of blood. I used that as my ground zero to search for other clues. Once she saw me paying close attention to one spot, she came over to see what had caught my attention. She put her hand to her mouth and started breathing erratically. Is that... Yes ma'am, it's blood. I said waiting for her to fall into hysterics. And to my great surprise, she didn't. She merely fell to the ground and stared at the spot in shock. I took this moment to call for assistance on my radio. I gave them the coordinates and told them that we had two missing hikers that were possibly the victims of an animal attack. Dell, my boss, hesitated for a moment and then asked me what kind of animal. I told him that I didn't know, but I couldn't find any tracks. Just an FYI. Dell didn't believe me when I told him that I had found a Bigfoot. He deleted the pictures off my phone that I had taken of the creature's footprints. Yeah, it's safe to say that I hate my boss, but I'll get his someday. He sent a couple of rangers out, Nancy and Jeff. I won't say that I hate them, but I will say. They laughed me out of the station when I told the story about finding Bigfoot. So yeah, not my favorite people. Nancy made a beeline for the lady hiker. What's your name? She said. Ellen. The woman said, not even looking at Nancy. I guess that's one of those questions that I should have asked. Are you alright, Ellen? Nancy said. Can I get you anything? Do you want me to drive you home while they look for your family? It all sounded good. It sounded like she was really concerned for this poor woman. I knew that it was total BS. I'd rather stick around in case they show up, the woman said. Yes, of course, Nancy said. 
but you know that might not be for a while. Why not? Helen said. Maybe if you were out there searching for them instead of trying to coddle me, they'd be back already. I like this woman. Nancy plastered her vest, a park ranger smile on her face, and stormed off into the campsite to pretend to look for clues while she fumed about the hiker, who had the nerve to think she knew what was good for herself. Jeff stepped in and took over the show, I mean investigation. He started ordering us to go in different directions and to fan out to look for the men. I walked off in a random direction just to get away so I wouldn't be tempted to use my pepper spray on him. The farther I got from Nancy and Jeff, the better that I felt. In fact, I walked so far thinking about those two idiots, the rangers, not the hikers, that I lost track of where I was going. That nearly came to a fatal end when I stumbled upon a cliff's edge, with the grass leading right up to it. I stopped with my feet right at the edge of the ground. My toes were sticking out into thin air. My momentum had carried me a little too far, and I was teetering over. My arms pinwheeled comically as I tried to regain my balance. It didn't help that the first thing my eyes were drawn to was the ground hundreds of feet below. For an eternity, I hung on the precipice of a horrible death as I fought against gravity. Although in reality, it was only a few seconds until I composed myself and threw my body backward. I lay on the ground, making a mental note to buy a parachute and to keep it in my backpack at all times. The only thing worse than dying was dying rich and not having the time to spend your money. As I sat on the ground and looked up and down the nearly invisible edge of the cliff, I thought about building a fence along the edge. Not for the hikers, but for me. As I contemplated how much it would cost, my eyes settled on something that seemed out of place, just visible past a row of trees. One of the large branches that jutted out of the cliff face had a nest built on it. The branch was big, probably a foot or more across, and the nest was even bigger. I pulled out my binoculars and I examined it. As I did, something popped its head out of the nest and looked around. It didn't look like a bird's head. If anything, it looked more like a horse's head. I took my binoculars down and rubbed my eyes. I knew that I couldn't be seeing that right. And I looked through the binoculars again and this time, the creature was staring at me. You know the expression, my spine turned to ice, well, mine turned into freaking Antarctica. The thing let out the most god-awful piercing scream that I'd ever heard. It could put all those women in the horror movies to shame. I covered my ears and closed my eyes. When the scream ended, I looked and the thing was gone. Either that or it had ducked back into the nest. I pulled out my phone to call the man who didn't exist. I started dialing the number and then stopped and I disconnected the call. I'd already turned over one cryptid to him so far. Even though he said to call them and find another, I still wasn't 100% sure that I had. I needed to investigate and get some pictures at least. Against every ounce of common sense, I stood and made my way toward the nest. It wasn't easy. I could see why no one had ever reported it before. The one place where I had nearly fallen over the cliff was the one place that had enough of a clearing to even see it. I was stumbling through dense forest to try not to lose my sense of direction while still walking the tightrope between keeping the cliff in sight and falling over it. I finally stood at the base of the tree branch that hung over the cliff. I peeked out from behind a tree and looked at the nest, hoping to see if the creature was there or not. 
Standing a mere 20 feet away from it, I could see how the creature avoided being seen. The edge of the nest was 5 feet tall. That thing could be having a dance party in there and nobody would even know. And I stepped to the edge of the cliff where the branch had started. Looking at it, I knew that there was no way I was going to walk out there on a tree branch that was only one foot wide. I've never wanted to walk on a high wire and I wasn't going to start today. I turned to leave when I glanced back at the branch. On the edge of the nest was a small patch of red. I looked through my binoculars and confirmed that it looked like blood. I hiked double time back to my truck, avoiding the campsite and I drove to town. I bought the most expensive drone that I could find. By the time I got back to the park, it was time to close the gates. I knew that I wouldn't see anything tonight regardless because there wasn't enough light. After I had helped close up, I drove home and I charged my new drone while reading the manual and familiarizing myself with the controls. I woke up early and ran the drone through a few paces just to make sure that I had the controls right. The camera was the most important feature that I tried out and it worked like a dream. I drove to work and went through my morning routine and then volunteered to continue the search for the missing hikers. The woman had finally relented late last night and gone home. I tried my best to remember the way to the nest but got turned around a few times before, finding the cliff edge by once again nearly falling over it. I guess that's an occupational hazard of being a park ranger turned to cryptid hunter. Once I had spotted the nest, I made my way there. That sounds much easier than it was when I was carrying a drone in a case the size of a large suitcase, and nearly as heavy. Imagine trying to do that while navigating through the heavy brush, trying to stay as quiet as possible and also trying not to get lost or fall to your death. When I cashed that first check of catching a cryptid, I thought it was way too much money, although I didn't tell them that. And now I'm starting to wonder if it was enough. I found the opening in the trees to spot the nest set the heavy case down and prepared the drone. I was so excited that I nearly dropped the remote control. I turned the drone on, I checked the controls and launched it straight up out of the trees. Its propellers buzzed with that distinctive drone sound and it rose majestically into the air. I nudged the control for it to hover over the nest, watching the screen the entire time. It had gone a little too high and the nest was hard to see so I began to lower it. There was something in the nest, but I couldn't make it out yet. Suddenly, something rose out of the nest incredibly fast and straight at the drone. My screen filled with static and I peeked out of the trees to watch my drone tumble end over end to its death on the ground far below. I ducked back into the trees so that whatever had killed my drone didn't swing around and spot me. As I hid, I checked my phone to replay the video and to get some idea of what I was dealing with. When I went back through the videos and couldn't find it, I realized I forgot to hit record. I'm such an idiot sometimes. I started sneaking out of the woods toward my truck to go get another drone. I paused and looked back at the case that I had left behind. Nah, I'll let it be, I thought. No use to drag it back out when I can use it as a marker for this spot. Besides, if I need to get rid of it later, I'll just kick it over the cliff. What am I going to do? Arrest myself for littering. I made it back to the truck and went back to the store for another drone. I'm back so soon, the cashier said. And buy in two this time. You wrecked the first one already? Eh, something like that. 
I said, pulling out a lot of cash to pay for them. Wow, aren't you a park ranger? Yeah. Well, they must be paying a lot better than here. Eh, not really, I said absently. Then how are you affording these expensive drones? I realized that I was blowing my cover. Vacation money was the first thing that popped into my head. Eh, we'll have a nice vacation, he said as I walked out the door. Idiot. I thought chastising myself. You better think up a better excuse or stop buying stuff. I was so lost in my thoughts that I nearly ran into my boss. What the heck are you doing here? He said. Um, was my supremely intelligent answer. And what are those for? My brain tried to get out in front of the situation. Well, they're drones, I said. Uh, for searching and for missing hikers. Really? He said. And who authorized you to purchase those? Well, you did. When did I do that? When you put me in charge of the investigation. I never. I remember when you put me in charge of investigating who had set the bear traps that got Ranger Ron injured. Yeah, but I didn't. I told you there were some unsavory types hanging around and you told me to track them down. Well, I did say that, but... Well, how better to track them down than with an eye in the sky? He paused, trying to process our conversation. Can I get a word in now? He said. Yeah, sure. Who paid for this? Well, I charged it to the park service, of course. His ears grew red. Don't ever do that again, he said. I don't care if I make you the head of the whole dang park service. Don't ever charge anything without my consent, you clear. Yes, sir. I said, snapping to attention. Well, get the heck out of here and go find those hikers. Yes, sir. I said, walking away, and then I paused. Sir? I said. What? What were you doing here? He narrowed his eyes and growled. None of your business. And then he disappeared into the store. Dang it, I thought. Why didn't I use that line? I headed back to the spot, drone in hand, running through my mistakes from last time when I stepped into the clearing and I saw it. The creature stood at least six feet tall. It had wings and they were folded along its sides. Its head was the only thing that kept it from looking like a giant bird. The head looked like a horse. It was sniffing at the drone case that I had left behind. I wondered why it was so interesting when I realized, oh, it's picking up my scent. As I made my horrible realization, the creature looked right at me and screamed. I had never heard anything so brain-numbingly terrifying in my life. I stood there, petrified as stone as the creature started toward me. My mind finally kicked in and told me, move or die. I backed up and stumbled over the drone that I had carried here. The creature leaped in the air and came down with its talons out, trying to slash me open. I rolled away as it landed on the drone case. I jumped up and ran as fast as I could into the heaviest brush that I could find. Thorns, jaggers, and all kinds of unyielding plants tore my uniform until they got through to my skin. I ran until I fell and then I crawled for another half mile through the underbrush, creek beds, and anything else that got in my way. Eventually I stopped because I was just so exhausted. I looked around and saw that there was no clear view of the sky and no sign of pursuit. I collapsed on my back and lay in a bed of pine needles as I caught my breath and thought about my future as a cryptid hunter or as a living human being on this planet. At the moment, it seemed like the choice was one or the other. 
and as I stared up I saw the orange sky of sunset. I wondered if it would be the last one that I ever saw. The sky triggered a thought. It's nearly dark and I have no idea where I am, let alone where my truck is. That thing is out there somewhere and it knows my scent. I knew that I had to get moving. That thing isn't the only predator in these woods, and dark is when they all come out to feed. I stood and made my way to a somewhat clear path of trees. I tried to follow beside the brush that I had crawled through, and eventually I found my way back to the clearing where my second drone sat, crushed with large talon marks through the case. I didn't even look at the nest, just snuck as quietly as possible back to my truck and I drove to the station. It was dark when I got there. I knew that I would get chewed out for not helping close up for the day. I stepped into the room and all eyes locked on me. They stared in utter shock as if I had just sprouted a second head or something. Do they know what I'm up to? I thought. Did the kid at the store rat me out to my boss for having that wad of cash? What the heck happened to you? Sharon said approaching me. What do you mean? You look like you went through a wood chipper, she said. I went to the bathroom, looked in the mirror and sure enough, I was a sight. My uniform was ripped so badly that it was barely hanging on me in places. There were spots and streaks of mud and blood, and my face, it looked like it had taken the worst of it. I had scratches all over. It looked like the only place that I wasn't scratched up was my eyes. I stepped back into the main room to several pairs of expectant eyes. I was tempted to use the boss's earlier report and say that it was none of their business, but instead, my tired brain came up with a brilliant reason that was sure to satisfy everyone. I fell. I was exhausted and didn't feel like dealing with the myriad of comments I could already see loading up in my coworkers' eyes, so I turned and laughed. When I got home, I painfully stripped off my clothes and I took a long shower. After settling in for some supper and much needed rest, I considered my options. Calling the man who doesn't exist seemed almost premature at this point. Yes, I had seen a cryptid face to ugly face, but what if it decided the nest was getting too much traffic? I didn't want to have to go out to the nest again, and I wasn't sure if I could force myself to do it. I thought back to my first encounter when I had captured Bigfoot. I was completely unprepared and yet not only had I survived, but I had caught him single-handed. Sure, there was a lot of dumb luck in that, but I still did it. I suddenly sat, bolt upright. I hadn't used two of the things that helped me the most last time, the tranquilizer gun and the gnat. I slept like a baby that night, the plan forming in my head. I made the phone call on the way to the park the next morning and gave specific instructions to the man who doesn't exist, that there couldn't be any helicopters or anything the creature could spot. I gave the GPS coordinates for the nest and told him to wait for my signal. I approached the clearing to the nest, tranquilizer gun out and ready, with a dozen more darts, tucked away on a bandolier strapped across my chest. I gotta admit to feeling a little like I was in an old western. As I hesitantly stepped into the open, I searched the skies. My eyes darted back and forth between the nest and the sky, not knowing where it might come from. I turned back as well. Until I had reached the edge, I was nearly dizzy from looking all around, like my head was on a swivel. I paused for a moment to clear my head and regain my balance before stepping out onto the tree branch. 
I took a deep breath as I took my second step. My eyes were locked on the nest. I knew that I could no longer look around or I would lose my balance and plunge hundreds of feet to my death. Wanting to avoid that, I stared straight ahead as I took another step and another. Soon I was halfway there and it was time to put my plan into action. I reached behind me and pulled out the net. I took a moment to balance myself and then threw the net over the nest. That's what was supposed to happen. I was supposed to throw the net across the top of the nest, covering it and taking the creature's power of flight away so that it could be easily captured. But unfortunately, that isn't what happened. My adrenaline was pumping so hard that I overshot and literally threw it over the nest. I watched in horror and resignation as the net fluttered to the ground, hundreds of feet below. Idiot, I said. My element of surprise was gone. I went for broke. I stepped all the way to the nest and grabbed the side of it to keep it from joining my net. I held the gun out, trying to require my target as quickly as possible. What I saw made me decorate the inside of the nest with vomit. The inside was covered with blood. There was no part that wasn't red. Spread around the nest also were bones, and there were so many bones I couldn't tell what any of them were, animal or human. And then I saw a backpack thrown to the side. It was ripped to pieces, but there was no doubt that it belonged to a hiker. As I was making my startling discovery, I heard wings flapping. I turned and looked over to see a set of talons rushing towards my head. I ducked to avoid losing my face, but in the process I lost my balance. My arms pinwheeled, but it wasn't enough. I had already gone past the tipping point, and slowly stumbled off the branch into thin air. The rushing air buffeted me as I plummeted to my death. I had stumbled off backward and was now falling backward, watching helplessly as the former safety of the branch retreated at terminal velocity. I would like to say that my life flashed before my eyes, but it didn't. My future life flashed before me. All the things that I could do with the millions that I now had. I saw images of cars, mansions, and swimming pools full of women all fawning over me. And then I was grabbed by my shoulders and lifted from my certain death. I looked up preparing to thank that black clad man with the parachute for saving me. But instead, I saw wings. My arms were held by talons. My savior was my enemy. It flapped its wings hard, sending us hurtling upward nearly as fast as I had fallen. I could see that we were headed for the same place that I had fallen from, the nest. I panicked, knowing exactly the fate that awaited me when we got to that pile of bones. My mind started running through options, but the fall and rescue were playing havoc with my common sense. By some miracle, I had held on to the tranquilizer gun the entire time. I pointed it at my captor and realized that it would just kill us both. We reached the nest and it dropped me into the pile of bones. I must have landed wrong because I felt immediate pain in my side. The creature landed and paced back and forth before screaming at me. I pulled out the tranquilizer gun and I shot it in the chest. It screamed again as it stumbled and then fell into the bed of bones. Men in black uniforms with no identifying patches on them appeared out of nowhere. They gathered the creature and took it to a clearing where a helicopter landed, picked them up and took off at all in less than a minute. I was removed from the nest and taken to a clearing where the man who doesn't exist waited for me. 
Well done, he said, extending his hand. I shook it, wincing the whole time. Eh, you might want to get that looked at, he said. You have a broken rib. How can you tell that? He gently lifted my arm and showed a rib protruding from my side at a very strange angle. Oh my god, I said. Eh, it's not as bad as you think, he said. It's not your rib. He called a medic over and she took a look at the wound. It's not going to be pretty. Hold on. And then she grabbed the bone and ripped it out of my side. My entire body exploded with pain and I fell to the ground thrashing in agony. I saw a tranquilizer dart hit me in the chest. I looked up and the man who doesn't exist was holding the gun. Take him to our hospital, patch him up and get him home. He said just before the darkness took me. I woke in my bed, sat up and felt a slight twinge of pain. I threw off my blanket and saw a small gauze patch on my side. I looked around the room and saw a note on my bedstand next to a check with a lot of zeros on it. The note read, Well done. You may want to take a few days off to let your wounds heal. P.S. If you're going to spend money as you've been, you might want to use a plausible excuse for having said money. Maybe your rich Uncle Murray you never knew named you in his will. I look forward to your next call if you choose to continue. I laid in bed for a day watching TV and generally healing my many wounds. The punctured lung was the worst. It wasn't severely punctured, just more like a scratched lung. I made an anonymous phone call to the rangers and told them that I had seen a huge bird carrying a bone that looked like it might be human. I gave them the GPS coordinates and I hung up. I made a bet with myself about which of my coworkers would jump on this information and try to take the credit for finding the hikers that we had been searching for. My money was on Jeff. I had the TV on the entire time and my eye was caught by a show about rich people and how they live. A thought suddenly struck me. I picked up my phone and within 24 hours, I was laying on the deck of a rented yacht in the company of two lovely ladies. This is how I spent the rest of my vacation. The second night, I was awakened around 2am. I peeled myself from between two sleeping women and got out of bed. I threw on a robe and stepped out onto the deck of the boat. The water shimmered with the moon being nearly full. We were anchored less than a mile from land close enough to hear the waves crashing on the shore. I scanned the horizon and listened for the sound that had woken me, and it wasn't long until I heard it. It was a long, mournful wail that seemed to call me towards it. The park ranger and the cryptid hunter in me begged to search out the source of the sound, but I stood stoic, leaning against the rail, making no move whatsoever. Next, the park ranger and cryptid hunter demanded that I found out what that was right now. I told the voices to shut up and I was on vacation, and then I went back inside and fell into a deep sleep. This went for the rest of my time there. Every night I would hear the wail. Every night the voices would demand that I chase it down. Every night I told them to shut the heck up. It wasn't until I was flying home that I realized what an opportunity I had passed up and how much I really didn't care. When I got home, it was the last day of my vacation. I spent the day setting up a dummy corporation for my money and buying some more supplies for my cryptid hunting. I had a backpack specially made with a parachute built into it, 
so that I wouldn't be the victim of a flying cryptid knocking me off a branch and nearly falling to my death again. I also purchased more drones and other net, tasers and lots of tranquilizer darts, and some other specialty items. Lastly, I bought a new pickup with four doors and a cap on the back, and I loaded it with equipment. It also had a bunk, a building case that I got stuck on in the woods and had to camp for the night. The following day, I returned to the ranger station feeling refreshed but also depressed to be back in this environment. I walked in the door and Nancy greeted me with a smile. Glad to see you back, she said. I turned to see who was behind me that she was talking to. How was your vacation? She said. Not long enough, I said truthfully. Well, it hasn't been the same around here without you. I was starting to wonder if this was the real Nancy or if I had found my next cryptid disguising itself as her. That's a nice truck that you drove to work, she said. Where'd you get the money for something like that? Ah, there it is, I thought. Just plain greed. My rich uncle Murray passed away and he left me a bundle. I said hoping that the story would stick. Really? Nancy said. Maybe you could take me for a ride after work. I ignored the double entendre while trying not to vomit at the thought. I don't think so, I said. Pretty sure your husband wouldn't like that. What happens in the park stays in the park, she said raising her eyebrows. It was too much, I had to walk away. I went to my truck and I drove off for my shift, having no idea what monster, critter, or cryptid I was going to stumble upon next. I drove down by the lake and got out to enjoy the view. When I turned to go back to my truck, I heard a large splash. I turned to see a huge, expanding ripple in the water. You know what? I said to the ripple. Don't even mess with me because I'm not equipped to handle you. You want to hang out and give tourists a throw now and then be my guest. The rest of the time you just stay down in the muck at the bottom so I don't have to see your ugly mug. Because if I see you then, I'm going to have to do something about you. So let's just pretend this didn't happen. Because I do not have the know-how or the firepower to take you down. When I finished my diatribe, I noticed there was a woman in a jogging suit staring at me. And do you always talk to the lake? She said eyeing me like I had just escaped the loony bin and dressed like a park ranger as a disguise. I wasn't talking to the lake, I said. I was talking to the ripples. She slowly backed away and continued her jog, shooting furtive looks back at me to make sure that I wasn't following her. I was waiting for her to whip out her phone and call 911. Now look what you did. I said to the nearly vanished ripple. It made me look crazy. I shook my head and got back in my truck. As I did, a few bubbles appeared on the surface where the ripples had been. I could swear that I heard a very deep chuckle coming from the same spot. I resisted the urge to give the bubbles the finger because that would make me look even crazier. I was about to pull away when I heard something off in the distance. I turned off the truck and listened closely. It was a long, mournful wail. In fact, it was the same one that I had heard on vacation. It sent a chill down my spine, but at the same time it called to me, as if it was inviting me to join it. My mind went into a major tizzy. Was it a similar creature to the one that I had heard so many thousand miles away? Or more disturbingly, was this the same one? Following me all that way could only mean one thing. It was hunting me.
I pulled on my laptop and looked up cryptid sounds, more specifically the mournful wail. It came down to two possibilities, and neither one was very good. Both used a sound as a weapon against their victims. So as usual, I went to town to pick up a specialty item that I would need for my latest assignment. Billy the kid who seems like he's always running the register grinned when I walked in the door. What'll it be today, he said. A James Bond laser watch. A panda lets you write an invisible ink underwater. Your own personal rocket ship. I didn't inherit that much, I said. How about some electronic noise canceling earplugs? Billy scoffed. That's not very exciting. Sorry to disappoint you, I said sarcastically. Try down on aisle 7 for your earplugs. Thanks again, Billy. I strode down the surprising amount of aisles for a local mom and pop shop. It seemed like they had a little bit of everything sitting around, waiting for somebody to need it. It was like an island of misfit toys only for consumer products. I searched aisle 7 and found what I was looking for. They looked like they had been sitting around for a little while, so I made sure to get some extra batteries to go with them. And then I headed back to the park to search for my prey. I was pleasantly surprised by the comfort of the earplugs. That would make using them for extended periods of time much easier. Of course, when I got back, I didn't hear the wailing anymore. I drove through the entire park without hearing so much as a whimper. I went home that night, tired and frustrated. I decided to get a good night's sleep and come back fresh the next day. The following day, I hit the park early in search of my prey. I asked around with anyone that I ran across. Hikers, campers, swimmers. Yeah, we have idiots that swim in our lake even though there's a well. We have swimmers. A few people had heard the sound and pointed me in the direction of it. Those who hadn't heard it gave me looks like I had gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. I used a map of the park and marked where I had talked to visitors in which direction they had heard it. Slowly after a few days of this, I began to narrow down the territory of this creature. Once I had a small enough area to look, I decided to camp out overnight and see if that didn't increase my chances of finding it. I made sure that I was the one who locked up and then I just didn't leave. I locked myself in my truck in the park and I drove to the area that I thought had the best chance of success. Then I waited. I found out a few things about myself as the time crept by like a sloth on Valium. The biggest of which was that I'm not a patient person. Playing games on my phone never held much interest to me. Reading a book was okay, but as soon as I turned on a flashlight to see the pages, I was attacked by a mosquito swarm from a nightmare. I ended up sitting in the driver's seat with the windows rolled up so those thirsty little bloodsuckers couldn't get to me. Not very conducive to tracking down sounds out in the woods. So, after a toucan shower and disgusting bug spray, I was back outside. I even hosed on my flashlight so they would stay away from it. I considered picking a random direction and starting out, but I reconsidered. What use is it to bumble off through the woods when you don't even know where your prey is? Just then, I heard a mournful wail in the distance. My head snapped around like it was on a swivel and I zeroed in on the direction before loading up to pursue. I put on my backpack and then my utility belt that held my taser, my pepper spray, and tranquilizer gun with extra darts. I started walking feeling like a combination of a mountain climber and Batman. All I needed was a call. I'm Batman, 
I said attempting to mimic his raspy voice but ended up in a coughing fit. I started walking not really needing to be super quiet with all the crickets and birds and other nightly sounds so loud that I had a hard time hearing the wail that I was listening for. I pulled out my phone and turned on the sound recorder and for a long few minutes I stood still as the phone recorded the nightly sounds and then finally the wail sounded again. It was closer this time and clearer. After the sound had faded, I turned off my recorder and I saved the sound. I continued toward the general area that I heard the wail, adjusting my course every time that I heard it. I knew that I had to be closing in. At least I hoped so because I was quickly approaching the border between the park and private land. In the park, a ranger is an ultimate authority. Yes, the power goes to my head sometimes, but this isn't about me. On the other side of the border, I'm privately on land. I'm subject to a buckshot anema if I step on the wrong property unannounced. The sound pulled me right up to the border between public and private land. I stood at the borderline where a line of markers announced state park lands. I looked left and then right and saw no one. So I stepped out of my jurisdiction and into a place where I had no power. The trees weren't as thick and I could see a small cottage off to the left that looked like it may or may not be inhabited. It was a stone building and weeds grew up the outside with impunity. I didn't see any lights on inside but then it was nearing midnight and the occupants could have been asleep. I did my best to keep it that way too, walking as quietly as possible past the house, never coming near enough to wake any sleeping dogs inside, I hoped. I heard the wail again and I knew that I was close. I went into stealth mode, stepping as quietly as possible while pulling on my tranquilizer gun and holding it ready. The moon was only a thumbnail and didn't provide much light. I didn't want to use the flashlight this close and alert my prey to my presence, and so I slowly pulled my night vision goggles out of my bag and put them on, bathing the world in an eerie green glow. The creature wailed again. I was so close even the nightly noises didn't drown it out. I held the gun out in front of me, knowing that I was close to danger and snuck up to a clearing. It had to be here. I aimed the gun with my night vision goggles making it look green like some alien weapon. The wail echoed again right in front of me. I looked left and right but couldn't see anything making the sound. It had to be here, it was so loud. What the heck, I thought. Is this thing invisible? I looked back and forth but all I could see were a couple of woodland creatures. As I panned back through I heard the sound again and happened to see something move at the same time. I focused on it and couldn't believe my eyes. I saw the creature that was wailing. Are you freaking kidding me? I said as I ripped off my goggles and threw them down. I put my gun back in its holster and kicked my expensive goggles in anger causing the creature to run away. A fox, I growled. All this time I've been chasing a freaking fox. I tried to deny it but I knew it was the same sound that I had heard before. My entire hunt had been for nothing. I hung my head and stood there for a few moments before turning to go back to my truck and call it a very successful night. As I turned, my face ran into the wrong end of a double barrel shotgun. At the other end of it was a woman that was a head shorter and several decades older than me. Evening, Ranger, she said. Evening, I said back. You're a little out of your territory, aren't you? Yes, ma'am, I said slowly raising my hands. This is private property. Yes, ma'am. 
My property. Yes, ma'am. What's all this ma'am business, she said. You calling me old? You're aiming a cannon at my face, I said. I'll call you whatever you want. She lowered the gun. What are you doing out here at this time of night anyways, she said. I got lost, I said. Really? You expect me to believe that? It's true. She stepped over to my goggles and picked them up. You got lost with a pair of night vision goggles that probably cost more than your month's salary. I recently got promoted. To what? I'd rather not say. Her eyes locked on mine, and it felt as though she was probing my mind and reading every secret that I'd ever had. Okay, she said, tossing me the goggles. Well, since you woke me up blundering through here, I'm gonna have to have some tea. You want some? I knew the answer should be no. There was no way I should go into this person's house. I had no idea who she was or what she was capable of. I would be totally out of my mind to say, Yeah, sure, I'd like some tea. I followed her back to the house that I had seen earlier and stabbed my pack outside by the door. I had to duck at the doorway to keep my head on my shoulders. Inside was small but cozy. The room was lit entirely with candles sitting on the table, the mantel and even a couple of wall fixtures. It bathed the room in a soft glow as if everything had a radiance exuding from it. I smelled the scent of tea brewing and wafting in from the kitchen. A few minutes later, she came in holding two cups. I accepted one from her. Please sit, she said. I lowered myself into a chair that didn't look very comfortable. However, when I sat, I melted into it. It may have been the most comfortable chair that I had ever sat in. So tell me, she said, sipping her tea. What were you looking for out there tonight? A fox, of course, I said. She sipped again. I don't believe you were. Of course I was, I lied. And that's why you were so disappointed that you kicked your expensive equipment. It was the wrong color, I said. I was looking for a gray fox instead of a red one. Hmm, she said, taking another sip of tea, her eyes never leaving mine. How much do park rangers make nowadays? Oh, the same as usual. It's just you seem to have quite a bit of new and expensive equipment for a ranger. Yeah, my uncle passed away and left me a sizable inheritance. She smiled. We both know that isn't true. Yes, it is. Whatever you say. It's true. All right, then, it's true, she said. Who am I to know if somebody's relative has passed or not? She sipped her tea. What about you? I said. What about me? Why are you out here in the middle of nowhere all by yourself? I like it out here. I enjoy the woods and the animals. People leave you alone for the most part. She stared at me pointedly for the last part. I didn't come out here looking for you. And didn't you? She said, her eyes shining in the candlelight. My breath caught in my throat. No, I said unsure if I believed it or not. You're not a park ranger, are you? She said, looking over the rim of her cup. Of course I. No, you may have been one once, she said. But now you're something else. Either her voice or the chair of the candles. Heck, maybe all three had me in a daze. I could feel myself being carried off to a land of sweet slumber. My mind was screaming at me to wake up and get out. With a supreme effort... I rose from my chair and sat the cup on the table. 
My hand hovered over the pistol. This has been a very interesting visit, but I think it's time for me to leave. Oh, yes, of course. She said, setting her own tea down and standing. She offered her hand, and I looked at it for a long moment before shaking it. Maybe we'll run across each other some other time, she said. Yeah, maybe we will. I said before ducking my head through the doorway and out into the evening air. The coolness hit me right away, and it wasn't just the temperature. It was like I had just broken free from some mental web. I didn't hear the wail again that night as I retrieved my pack, made my way back to my truck and left the park. My mind was preoccupied as I drove home. Who was that woman and what was that woman? The next day, as I was walking through the park, someone snuck up behind me. Oh, hello there, Ranger, she said. I nearly jumped out of my skin and did a comical dance trying not to fall down. She laughed as I composed myself. You're trying to scare me to death. I said, fighting back some of the other words that I wanted to say. Not just yet, she said. I hesitated. When? Oh, don't worry. You'll have plenty of time to spend your inheritance, I think. I shot her a look. Who are you? If you want another truth, don't start with a lie. Who are you? I think you already know who I am. Or do you want to hear the words? The words would be nice. She said, her gray robe and hair flowing in the breeze. I looked left and right to be sure no one was close enough to hear her. Uh, cryptid hunter, I said. Your turn. Excuse me for answering a question with a question, but what were you chasing last night? What did you think you were going to find? I wasn't sure, I said honestly. I'm never sure what I'll find when I go looking. And yet you go anyway, not knowing and maybe not caring about the possible danger you could be walking into. I shrugged. I've been okay so far. She stared at me as serious as a heart attack. Do you think that someday dumb luck might run out? That's when I fall back on technology. I said patting the taser in its holster. She smiled ruefully. I've never put much faith in technology. It's very cold and impersonal. You still haven't told me who you are. You're right. She said and then turned and walked away. But she stopped and faced me. If you want to know who I am, be at my house tonight at midnight. At midnight, really, I said. I'll see you then. She stepped around the corner in the trail and disappeared. I ran after her to see her, but she was nowhere to be found. The rest of the day was a blur as I watched the clock incessantly. I became convinced that midnight would never come, as if somewhere someone was holding up Moses' arm so the sun would stay in place. As my excitement built, so did my dread. Out in the middle of nowhere, I'd be on my own. Her comments about dumb luck, running out in death, still burned in my mind. If this was the creature that I thought it was, I could be pushing up daisies tomorrow, even if she did look like a kindly old woman. As the clock struck 11, I decided to enlist some insurance. At midnight, I sat in my truck on the dirt road that ran in front of her house. She stepped out in motion for me to come in. I kept my utility belt on as I got out of the truck. I may be stupid, but I ain't dumb. Going in there without a weapon of some sort would be a new kind of crazy. I ducked inside her doorway to the room looking the same as yesterday. The only thing that I hadn't noticed before was a stuffed crow on the mantle. At least I think it was stuffed. 
It had those eyes that seemed to follow you everywhere. I sat in the same comfortable chair as she handed me a cup of tea, and while she turned to go to her own seat, I gave it a quick sniff. Ah, oh, don't worry, she said without looking. I didn't put anything in the tea. I took a quick sip and then set it down on the table. She settled into her chair and fixed me with a look. So, you want to know who I am, she said. I nodded like a little kid being asked questions by the teacher. But you must have some idea or you wouldn't be here. You made me tell you that I was a cryptid hunter. And how exactly does that work? She said with an edge in her voice. Do you kill them? What? No, of course not. They're way too valuable for that. She sat back as if the answer had surprised her. So what does happen? I capture the creature and then call up some people and they come and get it. And they give you a considerable sum for it. Well, of course, I shrugged. Her eyes penetrated mine as she leaned forward. Have you ever considered that these creatures don't want to leave their home? Yeah, I actually have. I lied, leaning forward. Have you ever stood knee up in blood and bones of the victims of one of these creatures? I have. She sat back. Oh, really? Animal bones? And mixed with human. And which do you consider more important? Well, human, of course, I said. But these creatures are all apex predators. Every creature has the right to hunt, but when you have one that is at the top of the food chain, they need to be kept in check. Like humans, she said. Am I an apex predator? No, I said, trying to keep my voice from shaking. You're something more than that. And therefore, I must be caged. I lowered my head and pulled out my tranquilizer gun. I'm sorry, I said. I've already called and told them that I was on the hunt. And if they didn't hear from me by one o'clock, to zero in on my GPS signal and come to rescue. Her eyes shone with sadness. She gave no resistance as I aimed the gun at her. This time, there was no haziness in my mind. No sleepiness tugged at the corners of my consciousness. She was allowing me the choice of taking her. Pulling the trigger seemed impossible. My mind was screaming at me not to do it. She watched my internal struggle. What if I could offer you an alternative, she said. I'm listening. I drove her to the lake and unlocked the gate, and I parked the truck near the water and sat waiting. Are you sure this will work, I said. I'm betting my freedom on it. She smiled and got out of the truck. Just remember, she said pointing to my ears. I know. She stepped away from the truck into the edge of the lake. She closed her eyes and started singing. It was a beautiful yet discordant melody. I knew that it would never hit the top 40. She raised her arms as the melody poured out of her, washing over the surface of the lake and causing all other sounds to cease. Her song ended and she stood as still as a statue waiting. A few minutes later, the water stirred. A head broke through the surface and peered around as though looking for any prying ears. A beautiful woman with long hair covering her chest and fish scales covering from her waist down emerged from the water and spoke to the old woman. I told you never to call me again, the lake woman said. I wanted to make peace. The woman laughed. Make peace, there is no peace to be made between you and I. Depart before I foretell of your demise. I have an offering. The old woman said gesturing toward the truck. On cue, I got out and approached. The lake woman looked me up and down. 
This offering is good, but it's not enough, she said. Bring me one of these each night for a month and I'll consider your petition. The old woman bowed her head in acquiescence as the lake woman approached me. She began to sing and I swooned. She turned and started back into the lake with me following behind, captive to her song. I struggled against the tugging that I felt. The earplugs were working mostly, but I still faltered, my hand hovering over the gun. With a supreme effort, I pulled on my gun and shot a dart into her back. She turned and hissed at me as her beautiful face morphed into a hideous monster. Her eyes narrowed unnaturally, and her teeth grew longer and sharper. She lunged at me but missed and fell face first into the lake, a victim of the sedative. I pulled her out of the water and slung her over my shoulder. As I turned toward the truck, she used her last ounce of energy to bite my neck. Ah, dang it, I said dropping her on the shore. Let me see, the old woman said. It's not fatal, is it? I said half-joking. She slapped my shoulder playfully. No, it's not fatal, jerk. I smiled as I pulled up my phone. You should probably go. She reached up and kissed my cheek. Thank you, she said walking away. Back at ya, I said holding my shoulder as I watched her disappear. Within ten minutes, the man who doesn't exist was standing in front of me as the black-clad men with no identifying patches took the creature. A medic was tending to my wound. Hey, not as bad as last time, she said, shooting me a smile. Thanks, I'll try to do better. The man who doesn't exist shook my hand. Well done, he said. I saw that you set up a dummy corporation. Very smart. I'll wire the money to it. Thanks. I said, pulling my shirt over the bandage on my wound. Anything else you have for me? He said, scanning the area. How many were you expecting? I chuckled. Am I supposed to up my quota? His eyes stared into mine for a long moment, and I held my breath. Of course not, he said. You've done well. Yeah, thanks. Until next time, he said, getting into the helicopter and flying away. Yeah, I said, rubbing my shoulder. Next time. I stood by the edge of the lake, watching the helicopter fly away. I was amazed at how quiet it was. I assumed it was some kind of a stealth technology. I rubbed my injured shoulder and wished that I could take another vacation. Maybe I could fake an injury or a sickness, I thought, imagining another month in the arms of two lovely ladies as we stare out over glistening clear water. But that wouldn't work if one of my idiot co-workers came to visit me in the hospital. In fact, now that they know I had money, that's a distinct possibility. I sighed. I guess I'll just have to wait for the weekend like everybody else. I'm sure I can fly away and pack a lot of fun into 48 hours. I turned away from the lake and headed back to my truck as a large splash sounded from the water. I stopped inside. Not today, I said without turning around. I drove home and collapsed in my bed, exhausted that I couldn't get that woman out of my head. Sleep came eventually and fitfully. When my alarm went off, I nearly cried. I felt like I'd been run over by a truck. I looked at my watch. Dang, it's only Wednesday, I thought. Maybe I'll take Friday off and fly away for a three-day weekend. I checked my bank account and found no deposit. 
I was about to go full hissy fit when I remembered what he had said, and I checked the account of my dummy corporation. I sighed with relief, seeing the account had grown by the usual amount. I showered and dressed and headed for work, grabbing a quick breakfast and a coffee on the way. I had barely made it to the front door of the station when I was accosted by Jeff. There he is, Jeff said grabbing me in a bear hug and making me wince in pain. I haven't seen you around so much. Have we been missing each other? And just like I guess, I said trying not to scream. Such a kidder, Jeff said releasing me. You missed all the reporters when I broke the missing hikers. What a shock, I thought. Jeff took credit for it. Who would have called that? Not too bad, I said. I guess you're some kind of hero now. Maybe I don't deserve to be in your presence. Oh no, he said. I haven't let it go to my head. That's why you're mentioning it a month later, I thought. Well, I better get out of there, I said. Those hikers aren't going to rescue them themselves. Nancy and Jeff followed me out like stray dogs. I got into my truck and I drove away, not looking back. Once I was out of sight, I let out a sigh. I guess I need to get some anti-suck-up medicine somewhere. I started my regular route down by the lake. When no hikers came running up to me to say that one of their relatives had managed to get lost or eaten, I went over to the spot where I had caught my first cryptid. Strangely enough, no one had removed the bear trap. It wasn't set, but still, it was weird. I'd have to talk to the person in charge of investigating how that trap got there. Oh wait, that'd be me. As I chuckled to myself, I had a strange feeling that something was wrong. The birds had suddenly stopped singing. The silence was eerie. I turned around and there stood another creature like the first one that I had captured. It wasn't quite as tall as the first, but it had bumps on its chest. And it was also glaring at me and snarling. I quickly put two and two together. Uh, hello, Mrs. Um, foot. I said, letting my hand slowly drift down toward my trank gun. I bet you're wondering where your husband is. She let out a massive roar that nearly made me pee my pants. Absolutely, you have every right to be upset, I said. I'd be upset too if my husband ran off with some hot werewolf like that. My hand was nearly in my gun when she had had enough. She lunged at me, slashing at my hand and knocking the gun away. I screamed in pain and grabbed for my taser, but she swatted that away too, then aimed another slash at me. It would have hit me in the throat, but I tripped as I was backpedaling away, and it ended up ripping across my side. I lay on the ground, defenseless and bleeding, and she came at me again. I reached painfully around in my backpack, trying to find anything that could use as a weapon. As I tugged at the zipper, my hand slipped and I pulled the release for the parachute. It sprung out and flopped onto the ground. She paused, staring at the white material and then resumed her assault. I tried to use that time to get away. I struggled to my feet and started running. Suddenly I was yanked backward. I turned and found Mrs. Bigfoot holding the parachute cords and dragging me toward her. I couldn't tell for sure out of sheer terror what would happen when she had finished reeling me in like the catch of the day, but that I thought that I saw her smiling. I pulled on my cell phone and I dialed the number. Yes, said the man who doesn't exist. Help me. Mandy didn't hesitate. I'll be there in ten minutes, he said. 
I don't think there'll be anything left of me by then. But the line disconnected. I couldn't decide if that was good news because he was hurrying to help me, or bad news because he was sick of me and was sitting back to have a cup of tea while Mrs. Bigfoot dined at my entrails. In either case, I figured I should try to avoid the latter if possible. And she nearly had me. There was only one thing that I could think to do. I jumped up and dove inside the parachute. I was instantly blind, being surrounded by material, but I kept crawling as far as I could away from the furball of death. I could feel the parachute being pulled. She was using the same tactic as before, reeling me in, only this time I had the element of surprise. I pulled out my hunting knife and sliced a hole in the chute. As soon as I saw daylight, I jumped out and cut the chute cords. I then gathered them up and started towards the monster struggling through the chute. It looked like the chute was fighting itself, the white material being thrown around by a monster under it. It was like a ghost on crack having a psychotic episode. It would have been funny if my life wasn't on the line. I grabbed the chute cord and started making laps around the struggling ghostly figure. As I wrapped around it, the fight became more violent. I started taking wide laps around her with the cord, making very sure to stay out of reach. I started low and wrapped a few laps around her legs, and then went high, trying to limit her arm movement. For her part, she howled and punched and swung at the parachute that enveloped her, but there was nothing tangible for her to hit. I was amazed that she hadn't used her claws yet, when four holes had punctured through the material and ripped all the way to the ground. She stepped out of her nylon prison and turned to find me. Her lips curled up in a vicious snarl as she shed the material and started towards me. I once again gave serious thought to why I was still endangering myself cryptid hunting, when I literally had over a hundred million dollars to my name. She flexed her claws as she advanced on me. Okay, I said. I feel this would be a good time for me to apologize. I'm a big enough man to admit when I was wrong. I'm sure you don't hear that very much. A guy admitting that he was wrong, but here I am. Nothing I said had a slower approach in the slightest. I'm sorry that I drugged your husband. I said slowly backing away from her, and dropped him off a ledge into the truck, and flopped him onto the concrete, and nudged him into the storage unit with the bumper of my truck, and sold him like a prized steer. It was all purely accidental. She had reached a striking distance and I had backed into a tree. No hard feelings, I said extending my hand. She extended her claws and reared back for the killing strike. I knew that I was done. I closed my eyes and thought of lounging on the deck of the boat with those two lovely ladies, surrounded by calm, clear blue water. Regret punched me in the face and told me that I was an idiot. I wasn't looking forward to death, especially not at the hands of Bigfoot's estranged, deranged wife, but it seemed like she was taking a long time to finish me off. I peeked one eye open and saw her standing there frozen, with her arm reaching back about to strike. I marveled at this apparition with a morbid curiosity, when she fell over like a redwood tree. Behind her, holding a nasty-looking taser was the man who doesn't exist along with several of his unmarked soldiers. I slid down the tree and I slumped forward, feeling more gratitude than I had since, well, since the last time they had rescued me. 
And did you guys stop for coffee? I said. The man looked at his watch. It's been nine minutes and 35 seconds since your call, he said. I chuckled. I'm glad you were early. Are you injured? He said. I raised my arm painfully and showed him my shredded uniform that was red and getting redder. Now nah, let's get you to a hospital. He said his two soldiers had gently lifted me. They took me over to the helicopter and the female medic gave me a quick once over. I thought I told you to be safe, she said as she checked my wounds. Eh, sorry, I'll try to make my next visit less injury. She smiled and sprayed something on me that made me wince. Sorry, but I don't want to bandage it since they'll just rip it off of the hospital to see the injury anyway. I crawled into the helicopter as I saw them loading Mrs. Foote in the other one. I told the man the story on the trip to the hospital. It seems that you have creatures coming to you now, he said with a sideways grin. Well, maybe I can set up an iron cage to use as an office, and they can schedule a time to come meet with me. Then I can just slip out the back door. He chuckled. If anybody could get away with that, I think it'd be you. We landed a mile away from the hospital where the medic changed into civilian clothes and put me in a car that was waiting for us. She drove me to the hospital posing as my girlfriend and took me to the counter before remembering that she needed to park the car. I gave her a slight nod as she walked out of the door. They treated my wounds and told me that they were deep but no ribs were broken. They made me spend the night for observation, which I knew meant, so we can get more money from the insurance company for you just laying on your butt in one of our beds. I wish that I had thought up a racket like that. I would be a quintillionaire instead of just a lowly millionaire. Speaking of money, my phone dinged. I looked at the text and it read, Money delivered, usual amount. I texted back, I keep it for saving my life. There was a long pause before the reply. I appreciate the gesture, but no, you've earned it. Tell Mrs. Foot I hope she won't be too hard on her husband, lol. I'll be sure to pass along the message. And there was a smiley face emoji. I chuckled and then put my phone down, laid back and focused on not being in excruciating pain. A few hours later, I woke to smiling faces. Nancy, Jeff, Ron, Sharon, and even Del, my boss, were all standing around my bed, having a let's see who can smile the biggest competition. Well, except for Del. Hey, I said. How are you feeling? They all said at the same time. Um, good? Nancy jumped to the front of the pack and spoke first. We had heard you'd been attacked. What was it? I thought for a long moment. I'm not sure, I lied. Happened so fast, I think it was a mountain lion. Hey, well, I'm glad you're safe, Jeff said, pushing to the front. Yeah, Don said, shoving. Super glad. I'm glad he's safe too, Sharon said, trying to jostle for position. Del just shook his head. Back off, you idiots. You want him to suffocate before you can suck any money out of him. They all backed up and turned down Dell with wounded expressions, but none of them said a word. I guess this means you'll be taking more sick time, Dell said. Sorry my injuries are such an inconvenience to you, I said. He didn't respond to the dig, but just stared at me. Yeah, well, let me know when you plan to come back, he said, turning to leave. Tomorrow, I called after him. I'll be back on the job tomorrow. 
He paused and nodded and then laughed. They all turned and looked at me. What was that about? Jeff said. None of your business. Now the rest of you can clear out of here too. The bed was surrounded by wounded expressions. And don't you people have jobs? Get. And then I turned away and stared out the window. One by one they straggled out. Nancy lingered but I refused to make eye contact and she left too. I more felt than heard someone step back into the room and linger. I could tell that it wasn't a nurse. I thought I'd told you. I said turning and facing the old woman that I had just saved from capture. Told me what? She said. Sorry, I thought you were someone else. May I come in? She said standing at the doorway. Of course. Unless you're here as a messenger. She smiled. Not yet. I relaxed without realizing that I had tensed up. She stepped over to my bedside and sat in the chair. I'm surprised to see you, I said. I didn't think that our paths would cross again after I nearly sent you to a cryptid zoo. That definitely would have put a damper on our relationship, she said. However, you didn't send me and I'm grateful for that. And what exactly is our relationship? She shrugged. What would you like it to be? How about friendship, I said. She smiled. Yeah, friendship sounds good. A friendship requires trust, and it certainly does. And trust requires that I know a thing or two. Such as? Such as your name? She paused and stared at me. No one has asked my name in a long time. Why? Does it make you lose your power or something? You read too much science fiction. No, I just haven't talked to many people in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, you don't exactly live on Main Street. So how about that name? Oh, right. It's Dolores. Dolores? Yes, do you have a problem with it? No, it's just not what I would have expected for her. I paused and glanced around to make sure that no one was listening. A banshee. She smiled. Well, then how many banshees do you know? Currently one. What did you expect my name to be? I don't know, something weird and mysterious, I guess. Something unpronounceable, like the human tongue was unable to make the sound. Nope, it's Dolores. Okay, so what brings you by, Dolores? Well, I need your help. What's the problem? I have something that's getting after my animals. So what, you want me to come and chase off a coyote for you? Do you have something better to do? Is there some pressing engagement on your social calendar? I'll have to check with my secretary, I said sarcastically. All right, we'll have her people call my people and set up a meeting, she said getting up. In the meantime, get some rest. I watched her glide out of the room wearing that same gray robe that flowed so regally. I laid my head back and reflected on how strange my life had become recently. Eventually, I nodded off to sleep. When morning came, I checked myself out of the hospital against medical advice. They wanted me to stay longer, but I had better things to do, and I had no desire to give them one more send. I was more tempted to buy the place and to bulldoze it, maybe hire half a dozen doctors to go back to the way it used to be when doctors went to see their patients, instead of making sick people travel dozens or hundreds of miles to be cheated out of their life savings. But I digress. I don't know how he did it, but the man had my truck parked in the hospital lot right up front. 
When I stepped up into it, my side hurt a bit, but I would have to take it easy. I didn't bother going to the station. I had no desire to deal with all the suck-ups. I did around and ended up at Dolores' place. Parking alongside the road didn't seem too obtrusive when mine would probably be the only vehicle on it all day. I stepped up to her door and went to knock, but the door opened. I stepped in and I ducked through her doorway. Ah, you made it. She said coming out of the kitchen as the door closed behind me. Welcome back to the land of living. I turned to the door and then back to her, a question lingering on my lips, but I decided to leave well enough alone. So, where's this thing that's getting after your animals? I said. Listen to you all business. She said carrying two cups into the living room. Sit down and have some tea. I'm on duty. Oh, like that stopped you before. And touche. I said dropping into the incredibly comfortable chair. It's not like I'm a real park ranger anymore. I sipped the tea and was impressed with its flavor. So tell me, how's your boss? Oh, Dell, he's a complete idiot. He erased my first Bigfoot pictures off my phone. Not surprising, she said. But that's not the boss I'm talking about. You mean the man that doesn't exist? She nodded. We go back a ways, she said. I'm sure he'd love to have me as a guest in his little zoo. I won't turn you in if that's what you're asking. There may come a time when he won't give you a choice. We have an open agreement, he and I. I bring him whatever I find, no questions asked. For now, she said, sipping her tea. I sat silently, pondering her puzzling predicament, when I heard an animal outside calling in distress. Ah, just in time, she said, rising and heading toward the back of the house. I got up and followed her. We peered out a window to an open field where an animal was being attacked by what looked like something out of a horror movie. It was the size of a large dog, but it had spines on it like a dinosaur. It was trying to bring down a goat that was running in circles to avoid it. What in the world is that? I said. A chupacabra, an oompa loompa. Chupacabra, she corrected. I pulled out my trank gun. That won't work. She said like she was chiding a child for the wrong decision. Its hide is too thick and leathery. It has its own armor. I put the trank gun back in its holster and I reached for my taser. That won't work either, she said. So what am I supposed to use? I said frustrated. I didn't get my parachute reloaded yet to use as a weapon. You used a parachute as a weapon. A long story, I said. Suffice it to say, Mrs. Bigfoot will probably never look at a parachute the same way again. I would like to hear that story someday. But now, back to our friend. Uh, the chimichanga. Chupacabra, she patiently corrected. I racked my brain until I saw it had the goat on the ground and was going in for the kill. Without thinking, I ran out the back door and started yelling at it and waving my arms. The creature was startled and it ran away. That's fine for the moment, Dolores said. It'll be back though. I hope so. Now help me get the goat up. Why? We need to guide it into my truck. I don't understand. Trust me, I have a plan. Fifteen minutes later, the goat sat unhappily in the back of my truck. Dolores and I sat in the front seat while I held the rope that we had tied around the goat's neck to keep it from running off. 
I still don't see how this is going to work, she said. It's simple, the back door is open, the goat makes noise and draws in the candelabra. Chupacabra. Whatever. It comes in through the back door, we pull the goat through the front hatch and shut it while I go around and shut the back door. It's easy peasy. What could possibly go wrong? She said rolling her eyes. I know, right? We sat and waited for a long time. The goat even got bored and it laid down. Come on, I said after a while. What do I have to do? Lure it in with a trail of Scooby snacks. Just then, the truck jostled a little. I looked in the rearview mirror and saw it sneaking up on the goat. I slid out of the truck as quietly as possible and I snuck around to the back. I slammed the back door shut and ran back to the front to a horrible scene. The creature had come through the hatch with the goat, and now Dolores, the goat, and the creature were all fighting for their lives. I wanted to open the door and help, but didn't know what I could do, when suddenly my ears were assaulted. I slammed my hands against the side of my head, as Dolores let out the loudest, most ear-piercing scream I had ever heard. Both the animals were instantly incapacitated. She climbed out of the truck as I climbed in. I shoved the creature into the back and shut the door, and then pulled the trembling goat out of the front. I laid it on the ground and then went to check on Dolores. Are you okay? I said. She was breathing hard and fell into my arms. I caught her and carried her inside the house where I laid her down on the couch. I went to the kitchen and poured a cup of tea and then brought it to her. So this is what you do for a living. She said examining the scratches on her arms. It's fun, huh? I said. Eh, not so much. Are you going to be alright? She took the tea and sipped a little. I'll be fine. You should go take your prize to your friend before that thing destroys your truck. What about you? She smiled weakly. I'll be fine. I think I'll take a nap. You're sure? Yes, don't fret over an old woman. I rose and glanced at her wounds. They didn't seem as bad as they had a minute ago. If you're sure, get out of here, she said. I'll be back later to check on you. I said stepping toward the door. She smiled. Thanks for taking care of my problem. I smiled back. Anytime, ma'am, I said and pretended to tip a hat. As I stepped out, the goat wandered past me. I chuckled as I turned toward my truck, which looked like it was having convulsions. Apparently, the critter had woken up and wasn't happy with his current accommodation. I got into the cab that was ripped to pieces and reeked like a dog had died in it, and then drove to a secluded area on the other side of the park before calling the man. They showed up with their usual promptness, removed the creature, and were on their way. The man smiled at me. I didn't expect to hear from you for a while. He said, looking me over. Hey, and relatively uninjured this time. I shrugged. What can I say? I'm a machine. He eyed me curiously. Did you have help? I met his gaze. Would it be a problem if I did? Not at all. I was just curious as to who. I smiled. Someone who wishes to remain anonymous. He nodded and shook my hand. Fair enough. The medic looked at me. Now you're trying to make me obsolete, she said. And perish the thought, I said, kissing her hand. I'll always need you to take care of me. She smiled and stepped into the helicopter with the man. 
They flew off nearly silent, leaving me standing next to my ruined truck. I looked in the back and saw all my equipment destroyed. I sighed and then a thought struck me. I drove to the station and found all the rangers inside. Hey Nancy, remember that ride you wanted to take? I said. Yeah? Hey, here you go. I said tossing her the keys. It's all you. Really? She said. Hey, you deserve it. She looked around the room at the other rangers who strutted out of the station, dangling the keys with a smug look on her face. I hopped into my old ranger truck and watched as she walked up to the truck and saw the damage. Her jaw dropped open as she did a slow lap around the ruined truck. When she opened the door, she covered her nose and ratched. I drove home, laughing all the way. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, and I hope all the stories really gave you the chills and put you in that Halloween spirit. As always, a big thanks to these sponsors for today, HelloFresh and Mint Mobile. Both of the promo codes and everything you need to access the offers will be linked down in the description. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound, and as always, stay creepy.